What's up, guys? It is Modern Crafting Monday. 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 I don't know how to follow. I don't know how to follow that. Oh, you go like, first, I- then I'll follow you up. <laughs> Monday. How's it going, guys? Okay. This week we have Ed Earl, the Zen Builder. You may not have heard of him, like I didn't. I had to look him up before the podcast, but phenomenal. Yeah, really interesting conversation. Again, doesn't go the way any of us thought it would. A couple of rabbit holes, but talking about really, uh, I mean, he, he saw a Zen master and got a life coach. And what, in my eyes, usually someone would leave construction, chose to stay in construction and find a better life for himself. Yeah, so if you listen to the podcast, you'll basically be a Zen master yourself and your whole life will go according to plan. I don't plan, think we can say that, Tyler. You won't have any stress. <laughs> we talk about how you take things personal. Personally, tough- that's an adverb. And if you and if you should or shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Mm. And uh, big it's announcement: we've actually partnered with Duration Molding and Millwork for a year, guys. So that they'll is be hanging out with news. us for, it is for the next uh, fifty-two episodes or so. Uh, they're manufactured exclusively from Boral True Exterior Trim. Duration Molding and Millwork products combine the benefits of wood, PVC, and cement-based options without the drawbacks and nagging issues associated with each of those materials. If you're already familiar with Boral True Exterior Trim Boards or Siding, then you know how poly ash performs. Duration builds on Boral's poly ash offerings and essentially delivers whatever you'd like to have in a poly ash profile that aren't standardly available from Boral themselves, like standard moldings and beveled sidings, semi-custom moldings, sidings, or completely custom molding sidings and millwork to fill a specific need or match existing conditions. With duration, it's all about fast and efficient installation, high performance, architecturally, architectural accuracy, and long-lasting beauty. Try duration on your next project and, in air quotes, make your neighbors jealous. For more information, please visit their website, durationmillwork.com. Speaking of which, what glue do you guys use when you're glueing You have to use a polyurethane glue. Polyurethane? So it's either Gorilla or PL. Like PL polyurethane, the thick stuff. Yeah, like the gross stuff. Okay. We, so we use, we typically use Gorilla. Yeah, same. Which that's I like the stuff that like foams when you use Bubbles. it. Yeah, let it foam and then scrape it off before you paint. Just be smart about with the boral. If it's like a mitered outside edge, I almost like to sand it. Yeah. Yeah. Because if if you scrape it off, it could peel a little bit. Oh yeah. yeah. You just break it off, break the foam off by hand, and then and then scuff it. Is Gorilla? Do I you have to it. like? Wet it with water or something. I feel like I haven't I used it in a while. Or spray it or so. something. Making that mm. up. We'll I circle did. back on the next podcast circle on back. that one. <laughs> Everyone's going to be real. spraying their <laughs> gorilla <laughs> like, <of> massive <laughs> failures. <laughs> Whoops, right, sorry, guys. So, so, John, what's your three favorite non-construction related podcasts? Oh, I mean, Joe Rogan. I do listen to Dak Shepard. I listen to a lot. Um, I just jumped on NPR and I started listening to a parenting podcast. Uh-huh. So I'm like, if I'm developing everything else for my life, and I'm that like, so when weird. I, when I used to be a boyfriend, I don't think I was very good at it in the beginning. And yeah. same with like having a dog, I don't think I was a very good owner. And yeah. I'm like, by the time I realize I suck at being a parent, they're going to be old enough to, to like, I can't correct it. So I was like, you know what, man, you should just focus on a little bit of this. And, you know, with having a teenager, the world's changing. And I feel like I can get frustrated very easily. 
and I'm like, I just need to understand what he's going through, you know? So do you like the Dak Shepard podcast? I, it depends on who the guest is and, and that stuff I do. My wife went hot and cold on it, but um, it's a good break. I listen to Rogan all the time. It's uh, I like his guests. Um, yeah, I, I listen to Rogan. That's yeah. really the only one I listen to, but I don't listen to a lot. So, But I jumped over no. to listen to Obama's. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to pull what? up what else I got. You didn't ask me, but I'll tell you what my three favorites are. You what are your three chance. favorite podcasts wait. that you listen to that are non-construction well, or they construction, construction related right? or non? Because sometimes like when I'm working out or like if after a day of coaching or just like I don't want to hear anything more about construction, you know, especially nowadays. It's like, so then let's let's talk about your favorite non-construction related podcast. All right. Well, let's, let's do that. <laughs> so I would say number one is Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, Malcolm Gladwell, he's awesome. Yeah, he, you know, he's the guy that wrote Blink and, and Tipping Point and really, really great. So the premise of this podcast is that he tells about events or things that have happened in the past that people really didn't understand. And he tells kind of the backstory behind events. Very, very cool. So mm-hmm. the next one is um, 10% Happier by Dan Harris. Dan that's, Harris is an ABC reporter guy, right? And so it's all about mindfulness and and being present and all the stuff that I try to incorporate into my 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 construction um, business as well as my my life. And then um, third one would be Broken Record. So Broken Record that's also with um, Malcolm Gladwell, but it's really more more with um, I'm drawing a blank. What's the the big uh, producer's name? Uh, Will come to me in a minute. Anyway, he's um, he's done a bunch of um, uh, yeah, they like they did run the jewel and a whole bunch. Rick Rubin, Rick Rubin. So Rick Rubin is the head guy, and Rick Rubin, you know, has produced everyone from Johnny Cash to you know Run DMC to you know just a bunch of different groups, and he does these. He calls them liner notes for the digital age. So like, if you're into music at all. Totally eclectic stuff, but really, really cool podcast. So those are my, my my three tops. What's your favorite construction podcast? Oh, well, gosh, I think it's um, the Modern Craftsman, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> good answer. All right, guys, let's keep them on. <laughs> now that I see you, I'm Tyler. I feel like, did you do the Builder Trend speech yeah. with? Okay. Right. Yeah, so that's I did where the, I met panel, you. the panel with Nick, and I think I must have met you afterwards, right? Yeah, uh, maybe right there, before think, right? we stopped in. I felt like you looked familiar. Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. So. Yeah, so yeah, I, like and, I had a, I had a gig. I yeah, you were that. you were speaking at the same time. Yeah. But I had yeah. so we had met at the 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 Billiton discussion. But what you know, why I wanted you on the podcast? There's you have a couple different businesses, um, right. and I'd like to get into all of them. But you also and you just kind of talked about it with the podcast that the podcast that you listen to is mindfulness and you've spent a lot of time kind of, uh, I don't know if I'm going to use the word correctly, but Zen, like you're, you're the Zen builder, right? But what's the, what, what was the whole, how did you get there? Like I'm assuming, and I'm going to, I could be corrected, but I'm assuming it probably got to the tipping point. And you said, I need to re- re- restart. I need, a, I need I, to kind of relook at what I'm doing and, you know, reassess how I'm going to approach this. 
Um, and for me, hearing that you stuck with construction, because I feel like a lot of people get to the tipping point, you know, restart their life and say, I'm not going back into construction. I'm going to do something different. You stuck with it. So I'd love to know what that story is. Yeah. So that's a good intro. So, um, so I've, I've been in construction for 30 years. Um, so just quick background. So I, I got my first thing I did was a commercial job with my dad as a concrete tilt up building and right after college. And that's when I really fell in love with construction. So probably unlike many of you or the listeners who like grew up in the trades and stuff, I knew nothing about construction. So when my dad bought this lot and, and plans for a spec concrete tilt up and hired a contractor, I was out there like every day, just fascinated with it. So, and I had already been accepted to Stanford Business School, so I knew I was going off to get my MBA. So I majored in real estate and I was like, I wanna get into real estate and construction. So my first job when in San Diego after business school was with a large commercial developer. And that's really where I cut my teeth. We were to build, we were supposed to build four and a half million square feet of space. And then the recession back then in like early 90s hit the big SNL crisis. And I ended up losing my job. So there was no jobs to be found in San Diego. And so I created my own job. And that's when I started. I actually, what I did was, uh, this could be long, but we got a time, I guess. So my very first house, we closed escrow the very same day that I lost my job at the development company. And I literally went from the escrow office to sign papers to into the into my office and the managing partner sat me down and said hey we met with security pacific last night and we gave them the keys to the project so they foreclosed on us you're out of a job i'm like are you kidding me i just bought this house and the house was a total fixer so my wife and i went into shock and then decided to keep it and for the next six months i basically worked on that house and i became a project manager again didn't know anything about residential construction but kind of learned through the school of hard knocks and coordinated the whole thing. And then out of that, I started my company and out of that became an owner's rep. So that was kind of how I got into being an owner's rep. And I did that for many years. And then my kind of my crowning glory in my early days was in 2008, I built a 26,000 square foot house that cost $26 million to build. So a thousand bucks a foot. I mean, we built everything you could possibly build in this thing. It took us five years to build it. And we finished it the same month the market crashed in 2008. And my clients moved in to the house for six months. This was gonna be their forever house, right? I mean, you spend five years and 26 million building this house, 17 bathrooms, you know, 12 bedrooms. And they put the house up to sell. And um, so, and what happened for me was, as, and John, you probably may especially see this as a custom home. You know, when you finish a house, that's the best marketing that you can have, right? So I figured I had built this house for 26 million. They're gonna invite all their rich friends. They're gonna all come to this house. They're gonna go, oh my God, who did this for you? And then I say, we got this great owner's rep, Ederol. And I figured I'd never have to market again. Well, obviously that didn't happen. So um, it was a really lean, like three, four, five years for me. I mean, there was obviously a recession going on. No one was building estate homes anymore. And so I also kind of started becoming more aware, environmentally aware. And I had started studying under a Zen master named Thich Nhat Hanh back in 96, before all this had started. 
And, um, and he has a monastery in, he's from Vietnam originally, his main, his main monastery is in France. But um, he had also was, had constructed a monastery in northern San Diego, a place called Escondido. And so every couple of years, I would go up there to the retreat, and I was reading his books, and it started just feeling really out of alignment with between my spiritual values and what I was doing for work. Because here I was building these giant, like, monuments to people's egos, you know? These giant homes that were just really no regard for the environment or just, you know, just take things over. And I just decided, you know, it was time for me to find a different path. And so I hired a life coach and I started going through a bunch of different things. And as part of that, I actually went on a 10-day meditation retreat up at the Deer Park Monastery. And this was, I think, 2012, maybe 2013, I think 2013. And while I was there on the retreat, one of the monastics got up and said, we're trying to build this, mon this nunnery for our, our sisters here. And we have some great plans from an architect and it's going to be totally environmentally, it's going to be straw bale construction and, and all off the grid. It's going to be, you know, zero net energy, but we don't know anything about construction and we can't get this thing started. Does any of you know anything about construction? So I raised my hand. I said, yeah, you know, I'm a project manager. I can help you guys out. So what turned started as a volunteer job fast forward six months later and i'm now a full-time hired employee of Thich Nhat han's organization in the deer park monastery to basically project manage and be an owner's rep for this new nunnery that's being constructed so but unlike all my previous owner's rep clients that were you know gazillionaires and the guy that I built the $26 million house was making a million dollars, taking home a million dollars a month. So, um, you know, so he kind of figured that, that that house would just take him two years to pay off. But so I went from that to having my clients be literally Zen masters. And so I started watching how they interacted with me and how they dealt with construction and how they also incorporated in the design of their, their, their project. <laughs> And I just realized that there was an, I could incorporate, I always felt like I had two lives, right? I had my personal life, which was my, my Zen practice, and then I had my professional life. And I thought they were completely separate. But through this about three-year construction period that I had by working with the monastics, I found that I could actually blend them together and that I could combine them and that I could actually use my mindfulness principles and concepts of being engaged in, in the world and, and integrated with my, my perspectives with my, with my, my, um, my construction business. Going back so. to when you started your business, so you basically renovated your own home and yeah. that's kind of what supercharged you into uh, starting a business. But why did you go into being an owner's rep? Because I feel like the natural progression would be, oh, I renovated a house. I can do this. Why don't I go renovate, you know, John's house down the street? Right. Yeah. So um, I, I, I think because I just never felt like I was good enough to like to put the bags on and do it myself. You know, when you renovated your house, were you wearing the bags? No, um, I was just telling people what to do. So like this was the Stanford MBA approach, right? Like I create a schedule and I like had a my budget and I was like talking with everyone and you know putting the whole thing together but 
I didn't do any of the work. So did you see a hole in the market where you felt as though you saw other people trying to GC their home and failing at it? Yeah. I, what I saw was the hole in the market was that the residential construction industry was so much less sophisticated than the commercial construction market, you know, based on your, they, your, your few years experience right. with your dad and then the developer. Right. So I had kind of seen, you know, I mean, on the, 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 the 27 or the four and a half million square feet that we were doing, that was, I mean, I had pro formas and budgets and schedules and, and, you know, when we build an office building, you know, a set of plans would be 150 pages, you know, I mean, literally every spec is picked out in advance. Every, I mean, there's no questions. And if you, you had a question, you RFP'd the architect, you got an answer instantly. Mm -hmm. So when I tried to do this on the residential side, I was like, this is crazy. Like no one knows anything. Everyone's flying by the seat of their pants. But most importantly, what I saw was this lack of communication and this lack of coordination, you know, and so that was really how I worked. And my next experience after that, Nick, was actually working for my brother-in-law, who was from South Africa. Sorry, and after he, what? After? After I did the, the, the house myself, right? When I did the part of my house self, and then I hired, you know, started my own business. He was from South Africa. He had just bought a house in Del Mar, and he was going to do about a half million dollars of of improvements to it. It was a brand new house, but he was doing this. So he and everyone on this block had all bought the houses at about the same time. In South Africa, it's very common to have an owner's rep, to have a project manager. And so he had hired someone, but they couldn't do it because they couldn't finish the other project in time. So he asked me to do it. So I came in, again, just serving as the owner's rep and communicating, coordinating, integrating between everyone. And we, they, the whole, everyone on that street closed escrow within a month of each other. And I moved my sister-in-law and brother-in-law into their home like three months before anyone else because all the other homeowners tried to do it themselves and schedule their painters and schedule the finished carpenters doing all this fancy, you know, moldings and casework and all this stuff. What's the, and the so, I guess, sorry to interrupt, but what's the difference between an owner's rep and your then hiring a GC? Isn't that the, the, the point of hiring a general contractor is yeah. to, well, you're, you're smiling for those who can't see him. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, we're, there are we're some. not the most trustworthy people. It's like mechanics. Well, I don't know. I just don't think that most GCs are capable of that. You know, like a GC, like to build a house is very different than to manage a project. You know, like, I mean, you could be a really successful GC. You've got a great group of subs or maybe your own crew. But like, you, if you don't really know how to, you know, deal with the homeowners and schedule and coordinate, and I just that's the part that I find the biggest, and that's you know at the builder show what I talk about is that the biggest issue I think most builders have isn't in building the house; it's in dealing with the emotional homeowner and managing that drama and you know reducing conflict and all that stuff that goes on that interpersonal stuff. It's the secret word, expectations. Yeah, that's, that's the, a big That's part. the magic one because... Yeah. I just thought the owner's rep kept the contractor from having direct contact with the client. Like you need right. a buffer. Yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. a bodyguard. Right. That, that's part of it, Tyler. But it really is true. I mean, how many builders 
Well, now there's more, right? But most builders 20 or 10, 10, 15 years ago, they didn't use a schedule. They didn't know how to use Microsoft Project. They weren't doing, they didn't know anything about a cloud-based construction management system. I mean, still to, to this day, I usually am the person that comes in with Builder Trend or Co-Construct or whatever. I use a whole bunch of different ones depending on what project I'm on. And I run the project on the cloud-based system because the contractor doesn't know how to use it and won't use it. And so I'm, you know, I have one contractor that actually hires me instead of the owner's rep. I actually work for the contractor and I manage the whole process for him. He doesn't even know how to sign into Builder Trend. Is that and Nick? I manage the entire process for him. <laughs> yes, Nick. And <laughs> how does, how does him. <laughs> what is you, that you don't relationship? Do safety, do you? <laughs> what is that relationship? relationship or experience look like the first time that you're working for a new general contractor because i feel like a lot of people would be hesitant to say okay let's let this owner's rep run the project right exactly so i'll go back to the 27 million dollar house so when he i was introduced to my client through his attorney so as his attorney was drafting the construction agreement with the contractor he said look I know how busy you are. There's no way you're going to have time to manage this. You should hire this owner's rep and let him do it for you. So he did. And he introduced me to his contractor. He'd already cut the deal with his contractor. And the deal he cut with his contractor was it was like a performance incentive based deal. So he was like, look, he said, uh, we're going to build the house. And when we're done, I'm going to appraise it. And I'm going to give you uh, 25% of of the difference between whatever it costs to build it versus what it appraises for. Maybe he knew the market was going to tank. No, <laughs> right. So, so anyway, so when I get introduced, the the, G, the GC says to me, he's like, "Look, buddy, he's like, I don't know why the hell you're here, but and I don't know what the what the hell you're supposed to do, but you just stay the fuck out of my way, and I'll stay the fuck out of yours, and we'll get along fine." And that was it. That was how this, this this relationship started. But by the end of it, you could literally you can get on my website and you'll you'll see this guy on there. And he's like, you know, Ed, we couldn't have built this project without Ed. Ed was the glue that held this whole thing together. And I, I never thought I'd say this, but I, I wouldn't build another house without a number threat. It's funny, like Tyler, to your question, I feel the few owner reps I've dealt with are exactly what you said. It's just a buffer between the homeowner and us, and they're not doing anything other than asking the questions. Yeah, not I feel like they're the, not facilitating the process. They're basically just like, yeah, you can't actually talk to the homeowner. Right. It's like, oh, let me ask if they want uh, that tile. And then, yeah, they'll, they'll, they like that one. Can you get another sample as well, though? It's never been a schedule or, you know, helping project. Usually, I feel like I know John's deal, John Marley's dealing with one, and it's it's dragging out schedule because it takes so much longer for them to get answers because now they're going through two people. Well, I think, Ed, correct me if I'm wrong here, it all depends on the efficiency of the builder that the experiences that Nick you've had it's because you have built a trend you're on top of these items we've had the same same type of thing where it's honestly just a walkthrough mm-hmm. so that way it's a second set of eyes for the client we haven't had to go over you know logistics all that stuff I mean Ed what are you finding when you meet a GC that's that is well 
versed in most of the management and scheduling yeah. expectations. Well, and I think the other thing is you have to look at these owners reps. I mean, a lot of owners reps are attorneys or like administrative assistants or personal handlers of these people yeah. and they don't know anything about construction. But for me, you know, if you get someone like me that understands construction, we actually get things moving much more quickly. Like, you know, so I just had an instance recently where they, they weren't sure where to frame the door. And I was able to tell them, okay, well, you know, just don't frame the door yet, but at least keep moving, keep your framing crew there, keep framing, I'll get you an answer. I know my client's out of town, but by tomorrow night, you know, what can you do to keep moving the project forward? And I know the wall's in the right place, we just don't know where the door is gonna be, but keep the framing guys moving and I'll get you an answer by tomorrow night. And they're like, okay, great. Now, if the, if the, the contractor couldn't get that, you know, talk to an owner's rep, he may end up, you know, calling his framers off because he's worried that he doesn't want to keep building without knowing from the owner. So I think a good owner's rep who no understands construction in the process should be able to get those answers and keep that contractor moving forward until they get whatever direction they need from the client. So, and I, I think another thing too, and this is, I see it all the time. I say the same thing, and I'm just say all of you guys as contractors, I'll say the same thing that you guys would say to a client, but they'll hear it from me differently because I'm not their GC, right? I'm their professional advisor, trusted advisor person who's really doesn't have a, fi I pay, I'm paid on an hourly basis, so I don't have a financial interest. I'm not trying to keep them on a budget or whatever, but they, I'll tell them the same thing and I've even had them tell me, they said, well, what did you tell them? And I said, well, that's what I told them. They're like, well, shit, I just told them the same freaking thing. And I'm like, yeah, but they just hear it differently from me because I'm their, I'm their advisor and you're not. You know, you're or in that case, it, you reinforce the same point that the GC made. Yeah. So that helps out. But Ed, right. what happens if you walk into a situation with a new builder, a new client, and they are on top of the schedule and they are on top of the budget? Do you pull back and then become a second set of eyes? Or how is yeah. this? Yeah, yeah I, I just talked to a prospective client last night and he's like, he's so far into this thing. And uh, he's like, yeah, and I, you know, I live right down the street. And I'm like, okay, great. I said, I, you know, I don't even need to be there. If you don't need me for site visits, I won't do site visits. I mean, I could just literally be kind of on call. You, you know, it's kind of your, anytime you've got a question or you, something doesn't look right, just run it by me and I'll give you whatever advice. So, yeah, I mean, there's some clients I spend an hour a week on and some I spend like 10 or 15 hours. It just really depends on the project. Is this a team? Is it a team or is it just you? Yeah, no, it's just me. My wife kind of like on some jobs, if we've had ones where they want us to like handle the, the construction draws and, and monitor the insurance certs and kind of more where they hire, they're almost like an owner's built and like an uh, owner builder and they just want us on. So in that case, then my wife will step in, she'll like, you know, get all the prelims and, and the insurance certs and make sure everything's re ready and then do the draw funding from the bank and then, you know, pay all the subs and all that kind of stuff. Hold up, so, can we talk about how you are a master delegator? Um, forget about the Zen part. Like yeah. you just, as soon as it gets out of your wheelhouse, you're just like, I'm gonna delegate that. You know what? Exactly, yeah. Bring in the right. misses. Do right. all the insurance circs exactly. and the draws. What? <laughs> I feel like you potentially are acting in the role of a GC on certain jobs if you have an owner that's hiring you. Um, 
Is there like a crossover or a certain way that you kind of have to label your business where like, I feel like if you were working directly for a customer where there weren't a GC on the job versus a GC, your scope would be somewhat different. Um, how does that work for you? So in my contract, Tyler, it specifically says, I am not a licensed contractor. I am not qualified or authorized to review constructions means and methods and you know make representations on whether stuff is to code so you know it's kind of like a you know a non-doctor giving medical advice right i mean i have a lot of disclaimers and um so no and even on the one where i said where my my wife was so involved we we did have a gc on that job but he was just paid like a flat kind of supervision rate for the project and he he didn't want to run any of the uh, any of the payments through his um, through his company, so he'd, he'd get charged the insurance for it. So he basically the owner just paid him like a supervision role. He brought in his subs. He managed the project. He made sure it was built to code and to specs, and then we handled all the project management parts of it. I feel like this was uh, we had a conversation with a builder, Mike Mike from ECS, and that was how he used to run it is that he was basically just hired on supervision and the client was they were doing direct payments to the client uh to the subs it was just like it was strictly right. supervision so you're you're basically at that point you know it's running very similar but you're you're the the you're basically overseeing the financial side of uh the contracted working <laughs> making sure that they're insurance is up to date and they're getting paid and that you know it's it's accurate i just at at one time how many projects might you have going on um right now i don't have any because <laughs> i'm so busy with my coaching business which we can talk about in a little while but um actually i take it back i've got one project that i'm i'm hired on but this is a good one this these guys it's not the way that I like to work, but they did not hire me until after they had hired an unlicensed contractor, gotten three quarters of the way through their project. Oof. And and the guy shows up in mid COVID and says, I don't know where all your money went, but like, I can't finish your job. Hey. What? So, but um, no, so it depends, Nick, on, on how involved my projects are. If it's something where I'm, you know, 15 hours a week, then I may be just doing one or two projects. Okay. But I never have more than, you know, four or five. And that was before I was doing all this business coaching. So so are, are your, you did this 26 or $27 million home. And then you, you know, you went to the Zen master. You kind of reset yourself. You did a project for them. At this point, is your pool of clients that your owners rep for within that same uh, pool of people or are you back into yeah so it's interesting I you know what I still build estate homes and what I, the the aha moment for me was that it wasn't so much what I was building it was how I was building it that I was out of alignment with my mm -hmm. personal values and, and, and how so, so well in a couple of ways I mean what I what I realized in working with the monastery was this approach that I now call collaborative construction, mm -hmm. which is really realizing that everyone, like they were so interested when we'd have site meetings, 
they as much wanted to have like the subcontractors there as well as the contract and the architect. Like they literally wanted everyone there at the table in this very um, balanced and involved process. And so I really realized that what I did was kind of what's called integrated design or what most design build firms do is to realize that, and this is the way I do all of my projects now, if they hire me early enough, I tell them, look, we need to, we're not gonna hire the architect, draw your plans and go out and get three bids. That's just, that's a broken system. It never worked and it won't work. Can I stop you there for a second? Everyone keeps saying that it's a broken system, but but I I swear nothing is being done about it. It's still, it's like, I, I talked to an architect, we're looking at a project right now we had the conversation he i want to say he slipped but he basically was like yeah they're, they're talking to two other builders i'm like whoa, whoa, whoa. that news to me like the, i've been talking to this client for three months now this is news to me but okay he's like i know it's it's a broken system but you know the the husband just wants to make sure he's like you know talking to a few people has some options i'm like all right so you know it's a broken system as well and i know it's a broken system Apparently the wife knows it's a broken system, but we're still dealing with the fact that the husband wants to 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 consider other builders. So now we're appeasing one person and going back to the broken system, rather than being like you said collaborative and all saying, "Hey, that doesn't work, and here's why we need to approach it this way." So, and it's all Google's fault. <laughs> no, it is because. What's happened now is people are so used to being able, anything you buy was well, the first thing you do is you get on Google, you type in the product and you get prices from five different suppliers, right? You know, you can figure out exactly what price you should get You figure in shipping, you look at the reviews, you look at the pictures, like you know exactly what you're gonna get and you would never, well, most people wouldn't buy until you had gotten prices from, you know, two or three different people. So people don't understand that a construction project is totally the opposite of that. You know, first off, it, what? How do we fix that? So, well, how you fix it is by getting people to understand that um, you can't buy a construction project based on price and that price isn't the most important thing. And that unlike when you buy a, I don't know what, a, a a pair of shoes on the internet, it's the same pair of shoes, it's just gonna come from a different source. You know, when you're buying a house or a construction project, there are no two pairs of shoes the same. And I always tell my clients, you have to realize we're building a prototype here, you know? That no one has ever built this exact house before. Yeah, your builder's been building for 20 years, even if it's say a kitchen remodel, they say, well, you know, he's done 200 kitchens before. Yeah, but he's never done, yeah, but he did my neighbors. It's the same floor plan, the same. I said, yeah, but you weren't your neighbor. So there's no way it's the same. And I get people to understand that this is literally a kind of thing where you have one shot to get it right. You can't do a revision. I tell them, you know, it's not like Apple, they send you, they push up an update in iOS and they make all these mistakes and they just send you a software update, you know, two weeks later to fix that. You can't do that with a home. So it's just getting them to understand that that a construction project is not a product like they can buy on the internet. It's not, you don't base it on price, you base it on the process. It's not the product itself, it's actually the process to get there. I mean, that's the difference between a product and a service. I feel like a a product 
even if you had the same exact job, the same exact scopes, and you used scope and used all the same finishes, one builder versus another builder, it's going to be two completely different products right. at the end of the right. day or yep. jobs. Exactly. So the approach that I use, and this was something I learned from an architect uh, in, in San Diego, a guy named Don Edson, who was like an institution, you know, he like built the homes for every, everyone. And I remember talking to him and he was saying the same thing, how the system was broken. And I was like, well, how do you fix it? And he said, well, Ed, you focus on the four controllable costs that any contractor has. He said, you know, if you go out and bid an entire job, think about it. And in San Diego, there's only really like three or four good framing companies and like three or four good plumbers. You know, let's take the plumbers, you know, you've got these one, two, three, four plumbers. They all know each other. They all know kind of where the prices are. They're all competing on the same jobs, all the same subs use them. You're going to get basically the same price for that plumbing part of the job and the same thing for the framing. And so the only thing that changes are the four controllable expenses that a contractor has, and that's their insurance, their supervision, their profit and their overhead. So he said, you can go out and price shop a contractor based on those four items before you even have a set of plans. And so what that allows you to do is, and this is where the collaborative construction comes in. I tell my clients, you know, the week after we hire the architect, we're hiring your builder. Mm -hmm. Like we need to have your builder, your architect, your interior designer, and me on together within weeks of each other. And then together you tell us what your budget is and we'll design to that budget. And as a team, we will create and design this project and with all of this input to make sure that it's to the budget. Because if you go and hire the architect, we all know that architects don't know how to draw design to a budget. They're gonna draw, they're gonna over-design, they're gonna draw something that's not within the client's budget. Then they go out and get three bids, you know, and they throw the contractors under the bus and that just doesn't work. So what I do is I go out to the builder and I say, okay, we're, now here's our general parameters. We're going to do it cost plus open book. Um, and you, we're going to say it's, you know, $2 million house and it's whatever, you know, 3,800 square feet. And tell me what your weekly supervision rate is. Tell me what your percentage for your profit and your overhead and your percentage for insurance. So the, the last three are all percentages. The first one is a fixed amount. And the reason I do that and the reason I get supervision broken out separate from profit and overhead is because that's where contractors get screwed. Is if they bid it on a job and then there's delays that are beyond their control, whether the, the client changing their mind or not getting selections in time or the weather. But if you agree upon that hourly or the weekly uh, supervision rate, then that's a factor of, you know, we think it's going to be 38 weeks to build your house at 2000 bucks a week for supervision. So I'm going to charge you $76,000 for supervision. Now, if it's less than 30, 38 weeks, then we'll, we'll charge you less. Or if it's more, it's more. And if it's due to your, your, your framers not showing up because they got stuck in another job for a week, then we're not going to pay you for that extra week. We're going to document it and say that was, you know, under your builder's control. But anyway, so that's how I can competitively bid contractors without a set of plans. Yeah, but but we're still in this mindset of all right, well that guy, you know, wants to make this much profit or his overhead's higher. Now you're you're competitively bidding against that. Where it's it's I mean, in my opinion and, and to be frank, I don't think that that's still not fair. 
because just because someone's overhead is higher doesn't mean that they're they're better or worse. And right. same thing with profit and same right. thing with the supervision fee. I mean, a guy can come in and charge an exorbitant amount of money for profit and suck. Yeah. No, I agree. And that's why, you know, and, and my clients, I don't usually recommend that they take the lowest price, even when we're just factoring in those four factors, right? I mean, these clients are driving, you know, very expensive cars. They could buy much cheaper versions and they don't, you know, they don't buy the cheapest car. They're not going to pick the cheapest contract. I, I think yeah, it I, all comes down to education. I, I think, I mean, how many got, I'm, I'm a stickler on if I want to buy a TV, I look at every comparable TV. That's, that's the first there. thing I thought of when he said that. Right. I, I and, bought and, a TV and I was in Best Buy looking online like, yeah, right? it's the same price everywhere. That's yeah, great. And I'll, and I'll go to every store and I'll just do my due diligence is what I feel like. So I feel comfortable spending said money. If it's three grand, it's three grand. But I want to make sure I'm comfortable with it. And for a lot of people, I was just at a client first time encounter with the client architect. And it was just like, you know, this is the only time you might ever do this. So I think that's the thing is that, Nick, no matter how long this goes on, it, it's, it's, it's improving because social media, you're able to educate yourself on who's out there and what's, what's available to you now at your own terms. But when it comes down to it, there's still a huge amount of the market that's not driving the Rolls Royce or the high-end stuff mm-hmm. that, that someone told them about that car and the luxury a part of that is that at a certain, there's a huge part of this market that literally is if you're getting a deck, I'm gonna call the husband, I'm gonna call every deck guy that comes up in my Google search and get that price point. And I'm sure those guys do that. The whole point is, is when you do get to that, get to the plate, how do you stand up to the other guys that like Nick, you said, maybe the overhead and profit is a better number, but maybe that PM sucks and you just don't get along with them. Like immediately, there's no vibe there. So, and I think you get a lot more of that with people, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, that are experienced in this industry that, hey, I've done a few rentals under my belt, maybe second home. Yeah, that's my point. I think that's my point is that I've been in the position, Ed, like you're talking about is where they're like, hey, don't worry about all the, the, uh, the line items, we just want, you know, these four, these four items, your insurance, your, your supervision, your overhead and profit. And I'm like, and then what? Like, I'm just going to submit my numbers and then you're, you guys are going to make a decision because what, like, what are you basing that on? The fact that, you know, my insurance costs more or I'm, I want to make more money in profit than the, the guy down the street. Like that I include myself on, under comp and someone yeah. else doesn't. Like, right. It's like, like there's so the, many the margin. And right. it's John, you're right. It's it's about b- them being educated and having experience and it. it's uh, you know, so where I'm trying to avoid like obviously we get to that. Absolutely. You know, where you know, we're looking when the job I mentioned a, a few minutes ago, we had a meeting today and I I went through and I did a line item, you know, estimate based on very very preliminary high level drawings. And I had already been in process with it, and I had found out those other two builders I met today. I'm like, hey, listen, no problem. Here's a preliminary estimate. The drawings aren't complete. Very, you know, they're very loose, uh, but we're right on where I said we would be as far as price, you know, you know, per square foot for this renovation. This is, you know, and this is how I, I foresee this breaking out. But anything further than this, I mean, at th- that point, we're into pre-construction, and and we get paid, we get compensated for it because we've done the due diligence to show you how we would approach the project. You've had an opportunity to meet me, meet with me, now me and one of my project managers. 
if you can make now now is the time to make a decision so, and so nick on that how was it how was that approach that meeting who who dictated that agenda meaning it be about the numbers uh, what do you, you get mean? me? Like I'm trying to understand that meeting you were in, where today, you met with yeah. them. Yeah, that meeting today. Then, mm-hmm. like, like I just went to one last week. So and we it was never about numbers. It was really to see if we met. Client client right. reached out a few months ago. Uh, had we had met in person on the job site, walked the job, walking around. Yep, I understand the scope. I understand kind of what you're looking to do. So active job or just a. a they just, they just, someone just moved out. They just, they're, they just acquired it. Gotcha. So there's nothing, there's nothing. It's just an empty job. It's a rent a two story, uh, uh, brownstone, uh, condo walking around, understanding the size of it, looking around, comparing it to other projects. All right. You're probably in the ballpark of this much money to renovate. All right. Yeah. That's pretty much kind of where we thought. Uh, and then we, we basically kept that conversation open uh, over the course of the next couple of months. And then they had act, you know, I had introduced them or, uh, made, made a couple of introductions to the architects. They signed an architect that I didn't know said, Hey, we're, we're getting drawings done for, uh, some preliminary design. We'd like you to price it, you know, just to see where we're at. I'm like, yeah, no problem. So I get Arch- the, architect's fault. <laughs> the whole multiple bidders. Right. Well, so- yes. Um, so we get, we get the, preliminary drawings i hop on the phone yep they're talking to two other builders i'm like all right didn't news to me but that's fine let me take a look at the drawings all right this is you know i can spend an hour two hours max on this and kind of you know understand what this is i go through it i look at it i price out what is drawn i'm exactly where i i I expected to be and i sent that over i'm like hey you know we're right on par where we said we would be it's my understanding that there's a couple other people looking at it happy to you know meet on site so we did. We facilitated a meeting on site, met with the architect for the first time, brought a project manager with me, walked the job again, spoke about our process, and just re, basically um, restated how this is as far as we go at this point. You know, this is that preliminary estimate phase. But for us, you know, if we're comfortable with this number, because we're right in, we're exactly, we were literally to the, almost the dollar exactly where we said we would be. So... At this point, well, my question to you is, is, is how much did you take away from that client and the architect on their process and their expectations during that meeting and not make it about numbers? Like, like if you want to change it, like, yeah, you didn't change anything. Like, I didn't bring, it wasn't about the numbers. It, well, it was to, it was to meet the architect. I, I know. I guess my point is, is what did you learn? What was your takeaway from that part of it where this is their process, meaning oh, like, right. I know if I meet that architect and I meet that client and now like you had the influence in the beginning, mm-hmm. you were the main person in that, in that discussion. Now the architect's back in, you can go to that meeting within 10 seconds, realize, all right, the architects now influence the client more than I can kind of get them off the rails. They're I would agree with that. This, and then figure out what is it that they're looking for? Maybe in the beginning they were your client and now, now they've had this relationship and this partnership with the architect. They may not be that person anymore that you. I 100% agree. And that's exactly why I wanted to go is to figure out where the influence was coming from. And in the conversation, I realized that I, I believe that I still have the influence. So I left that meeting with everyone having a clear understanding where we stood and what our next steps were. And, you know, just my process in general is that, all right, I'll get you what you guys need and we'll look forward to a commitment and we'll get started on this project 
you know, whatever in, in this time frame. So like, you know, I guess I'm talking about my delivery. My delivery is typically always assuming that we're doing the job, but the influence, I agree, John, I feel as though a lot of times I'll go to those meetings and I'll realize I don't have the influence. And at that point I usually bow out. No, I guess it, it sounds like a sales tactic right now. I guess I wanted to understand, like when I walked away from my meeting on Friday, it was, I brought Benny along high, high end architect that we wanted to be with, mm-hmm. got the, the introduction to the client introduction to the client. And I didn't want it to be about numbers at all. I wanted right. it to be about why are they doing this renovation? Yeah. What is their goal out of this renovation? You know, the neighborhood, obviously you're knocking a house down. You've gone through a year of due diligence, you know, meaning I, I want them to understand I have empathy where they are. Mm-hmm. You know, Ed, I'm sure this is where you come in is that yeah. you're, you understand all that. So you're creating these, you know, you're, you're guessing two steps ahead and then it happens and they're like, all right, love you, Ed, just take it from here. But it's like, my thing was like, hey, this is the worst part. Like I pulled up and knew there was a truck in front of me. Yeah. You know, and I parked on the street. So that kid didn't feel like he was all like, you know, someone's over his shoulder. Like I had a little bit of empathy for the entire situation. And I guess my thing was, is like, I wanted them to understand that I didn't want to look at the drawings, look at the numbers. I wanted to look at the property. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, when we got up and started walking around, I was like, what trees do you want to save? Are any of these sentimental to you? Like it's really, that's the overall thing. It's is the that, same like, thing, John. It, you're, you're going there assuming you're doing the job and you're explaining how your process. No, I, mean, I didn't. I, I wanted to know, I want to have a connection beyond that stuff because if we want to change that thing, Anyone that comes to the table that the architect's bringing, it should be the same numbers, should be the same execution. None of those things should be in question. Mm-hmm. So it comes down to who do you want to work with? Right. And, and I'm not saying it as you're approaching it with a cocky attitude. I'm saying that you're going in there already in the mindset of, the, all right, it is my only project. Only when I'm what, on the podcast. I only what, sound <laughs> cocky on the podcast. But <laughs> but but that's a point. It's like you're you're in there asking what trees they want to save. Like, do you? It, you could on the other I'm trying the, to make a connection that's all i'm trying to right do. but the connection is based on the fact that you're envisioning you doing the job that's the mindset you're in you're picturing doing the job all right what what's important to them what does this project unfold and that's very that's the initial meeting where you know i was in in this case meeting too but the, it, it goes back to the the question Ed, and you start you started to explain it but got back I feel like you you started going down the road and you whipped back to this competitive bid on those those percentages. But is that like, and we totally derailed there. But is it really? Are we are we really fixing it with by doing that? Yes, in that. Well, first off, I'll tell you that sometimes if I've got clients, and I love by the way exactly what you said, John. When I'm working with my contractor coaching clients, I say exactly what John said. You never really want to. You never want to compete on price. If you're competing on price, then they're not your client. And it's, I have some clients that are like, you know what? We we're just going to interview three builders and pick them based on who we feel we have the best fit with. Some clients want to do the price shopping. So it's only if they want to quote unquote price shop, then I'll use that approach. So I'm not not kind of promoting that as the, you know, as a requirement, but. If they want a price shop, it gives them a chance to be able to just compare, you know, a different builders and feel, you know, check that box off. But I always tell them, don't make the decision based on price. Price should not be your highest priority. You know, if you want, we'll go out and get, you know, quotes from two or three of these guys and find out where they are on supervision and profit and overhead. 
but that should not be your deciding factor. So, but it just, again, depends on the personality of the, of the, my client. Uh, I mean, the guy I talked to last night, he's already picked his builder and he's picked his builder because he's doing an ICF house and there's not a lot of builders in San Diego that know how to do that. So, you know, he's kind of already said he didn't, he really even price the guy. So, um, you know, it just really depends on the clients, but I guess the point, Nick, is what I'm trying to say is getting away from that, you know, getting three bids. And, and I think if you, if you're only comparing those four components, it gives you less to, to focus on and you're not saying, Oh, well, you know, your numbers are good, but why is your, your roofing number, you know, 10, 15% higher than the other guys? We, you don't even focus on that stuff. You know? It's funny though, because I feel like when it is everything else it's never about the roofing number it's always hey everything looks good like that all adds up but why is your fee so high mm. dude it's a test 100 percent. i mean i've had clients have spent millions of dollars on stuff they want to know how you answer that and, and and when i say by how your tone your delivery what you're explaining and how you're explaining it how how, it, how would you answer it what which one so, john why is I, your fee so high no i mean it's not Hi, I mean it's really That's, when you break the, everything. The delivery down. could be better. Let's try again. John, no, I'm, <laughs> I, one of the, you know one of the questions I got at my meeting was you know how do you plan on staffing this project? Yeah, and because that question in itself is wide open. Mm-hmm. Like you, Nick, you brought a PM that scares the crap out of me because if they don't connect with that individual person that you've now picked for them, that could have been what knocks you out of the game. Like it's. I mean, I'm, I know, I'm just, but, I, but I'm just saying. But the reality is, is that at a certain point, like at my meeting, it was like, "Hey, how do you plan on running this?" I'm like, "I'm going to have a site super here, and usually we balance those supers between two projects because it's really how you can, you know, best utilize budget and not be too management heavy." But I go, "But if you guys feel like there's a more of a need for management, then we can then readjust the budget." But as we look at it this way today. This is how we plan on doing it. If we want to have someone there full time, we can then slide that budget a little bit that way and have that. And for PM, we'd have somebody that also bounces from job to job and the architect steps in and goes, that will be you. You know, like, so it wasn't an option to have a PM run that. I will be the guy that will be the point person and then my superintendent will be below me. How I plan on bringing in a PM and filter them in day to day, it's up to me. Mm-hmm. But I didn't bring anyone to that meeting to say, hey, they, I need them to trust me. Mm-hmm. And at that point, once they trust me, they'll trust the team. But if I bring people in there and try and influence that selection before it happens, this is I could be totally wrong. So, so Ed, jump in here. <laughs> Just, I, I personally feel like if you want to get away from people price shopping in the industry um, or that it's, it's a broken system, you truly need to offer something that other people don't offer. So if an architect comes to you with three contractors and they're all on an equal playing field, then yeah, they're going to choose on um, possibly personality or the connection. But if there's always got to be some sort of value to what these people do, if you're the most expensive and they ne- they don't necessarily want that quality, then they're probably going to get other numbers to see if it makes sense to pay that much more for that higher quality. I think that in order to get away from price shopping, you have to find your customer and you have to be a good fit and you have to offer something, whether it's it's speed, whether it's execution, whether it's cleanliness, whether it's your team, 
that nobody else can offer because then they won't necessarily care about the price because they just want you and they know that nobody else can do what you do. And I think until that happens or until you offer that, it's always going to come down to price. It's going to come down to whether they can value that cost increase for what they actually need out of that project. You know, it's interesting, Tyler, all, all the stuff that you said there, and I don't know if this was intentional, was all process factors. It wasn't anything to do with the final product. I mean, you didn't talk about quality of craftsmanship or workmanship or fit and finish. You talked about, you know, speed and personality, which I agree. I think for most homeowners, it is more about the process than the product. Um, but was that intentional or was that? No, because I think that that does have something to do to it. Like, like for me, I stay the size that I am because I'm on the job every day and I handle everything and we're handling from conceptual design through finish. So I know that I can deliver and it's not, I'm not trying to come off as arrogant, but I know that I can deliver a higher quality product because there's no lack of communication because I'm there because I can bounce between trades to get a higher finished product than somebody who's managing multiple people on that job i may not be the fastest you know but if somebody who's going to hire me is going to hire me because of our level of execution and the fact that we can be in your house while you're living there and maintain a high level of cleanliness and safety so nobody's going to hire me because i'm going to get their job done the quickest Nobody's going to hire me because I'm the least expensive. Nobody's going to hire me because my processes of dealing with customers is completely fine tuned and I'm getting bills out on time. They're hiring me and that's what I'm selling. I'm not selling things that I can't deliver. And I think that that's how I get away from actually competitively bidding most of our projects because I'm like, here's what we offer. If this is what you want, we'll make that work. But I can't sell somebody on hey, you know what, we do really good work and we're going to get out of your house is faster than anyone else is going to because other people can do that way better than I can. So, so right. to flip it around, Tyler, how do you, I know you, you have an amazing vetting process, but how do you sniff that out early? I think that's the thing. Like Nick thought he had it with that client and then it changed somehow in between. Same with me. I've, I've been there where it's like, we're the only people. And then you're the whole time for the next two, three months, you're like, is there anybody else? Like you get me like, there's always this doubt. So how do you sniff that out? I mean, I feel like Nick should have had something put in place prior to now. Um, You've spent a lot of time on this probably because it's a job that you want and you're doing things that you wouldn't do for other customers. If this wasn't a job that you felt like would be a really good fit for you Um, or something that you just really want to do. I think yeah, I that, feel like that's uh, that, that's usually when things sway, right? You know, it was definitely we looked at immediately into our our uh, putting into putting a pre-construction uh, agreement in place, but they had you know uh, communicated that they were uh, dealing with other projects that they need to wrap up and and that they were gonna they wanted to find an architect that they liked first. So I was just letting it kind of like that everything kind of trickle into place, but I don't. And John, I don't know when it got to a point where they're like, "Hey, let's look at, let's talk to other builders," and whether it was influenced by the architect or the the husband. Um, I, I'm assuming it was probably always the the consideration, and that's kind of why they, uh, you know, at one point said, "Well, no, we're just let us wrap up this and let us find an architect that we like, and then we'll then we'll be in touch." 
Um, and I think yeah, I you probably, I think that at that point earlier on than you anticipated, they probably weren't as good of a fit as you thought. Um, and like, maybe you didn't know that, but I don't think that you were offering them enough for them to say, Hey, you know what? Money aside, we just want to go with this guy. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the only way that you're going to get away from anyone. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It's always going to come down to, well, does it make sense to pay a third more to use this guy? Even if it's absolute perfection, it doesn't matter how much money somebody has, they're still going to kind of value that. So unless you can put, hey, nobody can execute at the level that we do. Hey, nobody can get this done as fast as we do. Hey, nobody can be as clean and as tidy as we can. That's what they're going to value and pay basically, okay, whatever it costs, it costs. It's just like if you look at an exotic type of car or a restaurant or a hotel, you have to offer something that nobody else can offer for them to be like, hey, I'm not going to price the hotel down the street because we want to stay here because no, they have so this true. roof. Like they all, they all have beds. They all have rooms. They all have a view. It, something has to be brought to the table that's exceptional. Exactly. And, and that, they have that to know money that. that it's worth it to them yeah. no matter how much more that money is. And if not, they're going to look at what four hotels in the area have comparable pricing because it's all the same at that point. If it's not the same, that's when somebody will pay twice the amount for a hotel room to sleep in because they just want that experience or they just want that product or they just want to be in, they want that view. Yep. Yeah. And I, I think that that's very hard on a bigger scale for a construction company. Um, but it, again, it, it depends on what you're selling and what you're pitching. If it's speed, if it's price point, um, if it, you have to figure out, you know, those customers early on why they're coming to you. Right. So Ed, how are you doing that with your, you know, not so much coaching, but your client, client base? How, how are you getting clients? Are they coming from word of mouth or is it more architects or, you know, attorneys or <laughs> what's your, yeah. what's your lead generator? Mostly word of mouth. Um, yesterday's lead was from an architect that I work with, actually the one that did with the monastery. But you know, the reason why most of mine has to be word of mouth is because you know, most people don't even know that someone like me exists. So they don't even know what an owner's rep is. I mean, you guys all do because you probably work with it, but your average people don't know that they just think, Hey, I'm going to build a house. I need a good builder. I need a good architect and a creative interior designer, and then I'm good to go. And that's when I always say, well, who's going to manage that group? And they go, well, I guess, I mean, don't they just kind of work it out by themselves? And I'm like, no, no. So it's, it's really, and that's the biggest challenge I have in my marketing is that I can't just sell my service. I have to educate people on what I do and why it's important and, and why, what my value is. And um, so, yeah, it's a, one of, I'm in a mastermind group and one of the guys told me, he says, you know, Ed, you solve a problem that most people don't know they have. So that's, a, that's the challenge that I have. So... Sorry. Um, going back to, I, I want to dig into it just a little bit more, and I know I want to get to the coaching thing, but really beyond just working for, say, clients that, you know, were building $26 million homes, and, you know, what was the, 
there had to be, I'm assuming that there had to be one thing that really disconnected you from your spiritual value to what you were building. More so than the fact that it was, they had no regard for climate and they were just building these massive buildings. But what, you know, what was that? Maybe there wasn't, but what was that one thing that really triggered that decision? Um, I, I think it was really, I think it was Nick, it was focusing on the product, you know, focusing on the final product and, and, and not realizing, cause even back in the day of the $27 million house, I was still doing a lot of what I do now, which is, you know, reducing conflict and kind of smoothing the process and trying to take this kind of compassionate, uh, you know, present centered approach to the management of the project. Um, and I just wasn't really giving enough benefit to the process and really focused on the product. So, you know, like today, I'm still building these giant homes, but I feel like, you know, that's kind of, that's the owner's decision, but the process of what I'm guiding them through, I'm reducing not only their stress level, but the amount of conflict and, and misunderstandings that occur between the team and all of that gets reduced because of what I do. So... And I I see the value in that. And so I probably put more attention on that uh, now than I did prior. So let me, I'm going to try to reword that. So why a Zen master? Why not just not build for a $26 million client? Yeah. Why just not do it? Like what, what, what led you to, I mean, you talk about a life coach, you talk about the Zen master. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I like, I don't understand it. Uh, and I'm fascinated by it and I'm, and that you've went as far as to brand yourself as the Zen builder, but I feel like, hold up. Was, was that a nickname given? I feel like nicknames had to be given. Did someone give that to you? Yeah, they actually did. And it came about as a result of me working on the monastery. They were like, Oh yeah, you're the Zen builder. Yeah. You know, you work (laughs) at the monastery. So that's how that all came about. Yeah. So. And that was really, and then the other thing that came out of that was that, you know, once I kind of, I gave a, a speech at the, uh, at the monastery and it was called Building Zen. And I talked about how we incorporated the, con- the concepts of mindfulness into the three areas of the project, into the design of the project, into the materials that we use to the actual construction of it, and then into the process and how we we used, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about these five mindfulness principles and how we incorporated these mindfulness principles into each of those three components. And then I gave that speech at the monastery. It was so successful that I kind of incorporated it into, and I gave it at the Builder Show the next year in Vegas. And then the next year they asked me in Orlando to give it twice because it was so popular. And then I kind of started doing stuff with Neri and and that's how it led into my coaching. So it was just interesting how I went from this career crisis and getting ready to leave construction altogether to within you know two or three years, I was not only still doing my owner's rep, but I was a public speaker and a business coach and a, you know kind of you know developed this whole uh, pr- process as a result of that experience. So, okay, so I want to. I don't think you answered the question. But why Zen? Like, why life coach? Why, you know, what, what, what Uh, really, like, why was it a life, why was it a life decision? And I, and I think about like, you know, 
myself, right? Like when, you know, when there's stress and we talk about this on the, the podcast, it's like none of us, you know, go more than I'd say a week without being like, why are we doing this? Like what, like question, like this is just the, why this isn't like, or going through this thought of like, this isn't worth it. Where, I feel like there's nothing zen about our jobs right now. And like, how do you even get there? And well, I think that's why I keep a- asking the question because I'm like, I feel like I, there's so many times where it's just, it's not. My mind my mind is so far out of it where it's, you know, at some points it's just like, this isn't, this isn't good for my health. This isn't good for my myself. But then there's other times where it's, you know, it's incredibly gratifying and, and I and I love it right but I've never looked at correcting like I work with a business coach I've never thought about working with a life coach to correct my business mm-hmm. and I think that's my disconnect here is you know rather than saying all right let me work with a business coach to correct the business I'm in you said I'm gonna work with a life coach and a Zen master yeah. Ed, this is actually an interview yeah yeah <laughs> so, so uh you know, what's interesting is what the life coach found, and we did all these tests and we did strength finders and all this stuff. And I looked at all these different careers. And in the end, we found that, you know, project management and what I was doing was the best fit for my skills. And that, you know, what I do as a planning and organizing and mediating and communicating and all the, all the kind of real skills that I had uh, my superpowers, if you will, all had the best fit with the project management. So it made me relook at it and go, wow, so maybe I don't need to change my career. I just had to change my approach and what I'm looking at. And like I said, I was doing a lot of the same work before I called myself the Zen Builder, but I didn't really value it. I didn't realize how important it was to have a person that could you know, communicate between everyone on the team and keep everyone calm and kind of buffer between that eccentric, you know, high, high stress um, client and, and kind of be able to, to serve that role. And that's, that's what I do. And that's what, and that's where I you mean, like, where does the Zen come from? I think it comes from that. Right. So that's a huge burden on you though. So how do you deal with that stress and that burden? Um, I, um, I, a couple of things. I, I don't take it personal. I, I realize that people are the way they are and I just don't take it personal. And I think that's a huge thing. Uh, at the last builder show, I talked about the, I don't know if you guys know the four agreements, the book, the four agreements. You ever heard of that? No, I think I have. It's by a guy named I agree Don. With it. Yeah. <laughs> it's by, a, it's by a, 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 not a Zen master, but this guy's a, a native American, uh, a wisdom guy and he wrote this book called four agreements and so the four agreements are the first one is be impeccable with your word so do what you say and say what you do the second one is don't take anything personal which is you know a huge one for contractors right we, you know we take things personal all the time and so what I tell people is like when your client screams at you about the tile or cabinets you have to realize that it doesn't have anything to do with you it has to do with them and what they're going through. You know, maybe they just got in a fight with their spouse or they're pissed off about something else. And it came out in your meeting about the time. So, but don't so, take it personal. So, Ed, I totally get you there. Like, I, at any given day, someone can bring something home to you. 
Like you're you're the punching bag for eight yeah. to ten months. The problem is, is that it's not so much that screaming part of it. It's the accountability part where if something falls apart, meaning if you're the one that's going to be. Yeah, no, I, I've definitely the problem I have with this is the person that told me about this book didn't actually fulfill its prophecy. Meaning uh, that they, they talked about it, they talked a great talk, but then didn't actually follow through. So it had some uh, some bad implications. But my, I guess my point is is that, yeah, I guess they can yell about the tile and they can yell about all these different things and they can just yell at you to yell at you. The question comes to you is that like when you promise to get a home together and pull all these pieces together and that you want this experience, basically, Nick, in the beginning, when you sell that part of the process, that's the burden I'm talking about. That underlying burden that most people don't see, but you're always trying to fulfill. And I do take things super personal. And I think that's also what's gotten me successful. But the flip side of that is I wake up at 3 a.m. to the voices. So yeah. how do you cope with that? That's because now right. it's all on you. Now the builder's actually off the leash, mm. <laughs> off the yeah. hook. Right. So that kind of goes to the fourth agreement, which, and we skipped to the third one, but the fourth agreement, which is always do your best. And so, and notice that it says do your best. And it's important to know that your best changes day to day and moment to moment. And that's all you can do is your best. And your, your best means that you're going to screw stuff up sometimes and you're going to drop the ball. You're going to miss stuff. But did you do your best that you could in that time and in that circumstance? And it goes back to what I was saying about the prototype, right? I mean, every job we do, we're, we've got a prototype. We've never done this before. And we, we're, not, we're not building this 10 times over and we can work out the problem. So inherently, every construction project is going to have problems. It's going to make, you're going to make mistakes. You just have to. And so... But Again, you know, you, you accept those and, and you move on and you, and you don't cover them up. You know, you go to your client. If you, again, goes back to what you said, John, setting expectations. And if you get your clients to understand that this is a prototype and there are mistakes that are going to be made and I'm going to screw up. And when I do, I'm going to tell you about them and we're going to work to fix it. But you can't give yourself this unrealistic expectation that, you know, you have to be perfect all the time because there's just no way you can do it, especially in construction. My, my question is like that book, I get that for like being a friend and being like in a relationship, like between my wife and I, like give my best, don't take things personal, like being friends with Nick stuff, you know, get me like, I totally understand. I've thought a lot about that book and, and everything about it. And I can understand that. But then when you start getting paid to do something and you have roles and responsibilities this is almost what Nick and I get into all the time is that, you know, if you're going to charge X amount of money and have a management team and then still, as I put it, a cop out and say shit happens, then same thing with that. The book is like, well, you know, I'm going to do my best, going to do all this. But then you get this kind of line where it's like your best is on a price tag and I'm paying that price tag without question because I want this. So I used to say, hey, I'm trying. And I used to get told, well, I didn't pay you to try. I paid you to do. And it's like, then people spin it on you. And then you're like, then you, after all that, then you drive home taking it personal. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> you know, it's just really, this is a massive struggle I have. And I, trust me, I would love to be able to read that book and be like, ah, I got this. 
but <laughs> I'm doing it for 25 years and I can't figure that out. And I'm getting red right now and sweating thinking about it because it, it's, it, it is something I struggle with on a daily basis because our clients could have picked any number of people to do this. And we embarked on this journey together. And like when we try and hit stuff and you try and give all the explanations and give them all the updates and set expectations and they see that you're doing your best. They see all the complications and everyone you work with and all the things that, that change into moving target. It's, it's really tough to not to actually do any four of those things. You get me like it's people don't see that on a daily basis because now you're dealing with their biggest investment with their life savings and you can take all the other stuff that we talked about and throw it out the window because now it's their life. You're messing with their life. And that's why lawyers get involved. That's why there's this redundancy and sometimes having a, you know, a client liaison there. So I don't know. I guess how do you deal with the stress? Like you really are able to walk away going, I gave my best. That product's falling apart. You know, it's burning. <laughs> like how do I put that out and not – I guess – so yes – to, find, to close this out, I think people can do that on a lot of their day jobs where it's nine to five. But like if that product's falling apart, I take things personal where I need to vet out how to solve that all night, all day, through the next two weeks to get it done. And I think that's what I do add value to. But if I shut it off at 4 p.m., had my second phone, Nick, and just shut it down, like where does that put me in the value scale for people? Well, uh, you know, this isn't a life and death matter, right? I mean, we are just still building home. So, I mean, it, it just seems to me you put a lot of pressure on yourself to, you know, to get everything right. And you're human and you're going to make mistakes. And if you, if you manage those expectations from the beginning and you're working with clients that see this as a partnership, and that know that you're going to be open and honest with them. And when you make a mistake, you're going to tell them maybe at the beginning, you say, look, you know, this is a prototype. I've, I've built lots of homes before. I've never built yours. I'll just tell you one thing right now, which is I'm going to make a mistake. Some point in this process, I'm going to make a mistake. But I will tell you this. I'm going to tell you when I make that mistake. I'm going to do everything I need to to fix that mistake. And, you know, and I'll work through it. But you, you kind of let that know in advance because that's the truth. I mean, have you not made, have you ever had a project where you didn't make any mistakes? No, true. I mean, that's name of the game. I guess it's just the mistake part of it isn't, I guess I'm just trying to really, I'm, clar I'm trying to clarify the gray area, which is not easy to do. But it's like, it's those little moments where you're trying to make everything work, but yet you don't want to let people down. You mm -hmm. know, so I get the mistake part is really black and white. It's really just trying to, you know, make everything work. And I, mean, I get it. Like if a tile doesn't work, I'll do all the all the provisions before that. Lay out the whole lot on the floor. Have someone pick it all out. Do all that. To I've only had one project in my entire career where we went through months and months of planning with all the right people in place, where it wasn't on me. It was actually at a point where I just had to execute. And I think that's what we at a certain level, especially the clients you deal with. There's architects, there's designers, there's a lot of people that have their foot in the door to make a decision. So when it gets back to the builder, I just got to execute. So it's really not as hard to do at that point. You're relying on drawings and there's enough, you know, fail safes to catch it. But I still like we had this entire design for a kitchen. 
unbelievable. Like we had a 16 foot island made by Brooks. We had all these little samples made from New York, everything, paint colors were approved, all that. And I remember when we finished it, you know, and the client walked through and she started crying. And then I realized it wasn't for joy. Like she legit despised the whole kitchen after like seven months. I absolutely took that personal. And that has been a root of like vetting. Like when I was told the other day, Nick, you know this, where I was told to stay in my lane. Where the heck was she the other six and a half months where this was coming together? She was, so she was pregnant and this is a designer they had for, I don't know, 10 years prior to this. So there's a lot of, there was a big relationship that was built up there where there was a lot of trust. Things were decided, blah, blah. But, you know, I I have, I do have a hard time staying in my lane because I did stay in my lane there. Mm-hmm. I did everything that was asked of me, but I still take it to heart that the final result wasn't what they wanted. And then to go back to like your spirit and how you are efficient and don't waste and all these other things, these factors that come in as being a human with the planet, then it's like, now I'm throwing all this stuff away. You know, there was a Lacanue stove that was green that was brought in from France that she hated when she saw it with, when it was next to the, the, the cabinet color. And I'm like, how does this happen? Like, how do, you, how do I put my name on that, that situation, that experience at that point? Like, so you get me? So I, I don't know. I know yeah. it's a loaded question. Well, and I mean, I would say you don't put your name on it because that's not your fault. I mean, that, that's, not, that's beyond your control. And the fact that she came in and, you know, was crying tears of unhappiness doesn't mean, shouldn't really impact your, is not a a true judge of how well you did in that project. Because that's something that's beyond your control. I mean, you're, you're kind of setting, if, if you're, if your reward is coming from other people's reactions that you can't control, then you're setting yourself up for a situation that is, I mean, you might as well like go to Vegas and gamble because you have no control. I mean, you have more control in Vegas. You understand what I'm saying? You, you, yeah. have, you can only control, you can only worry about what you can control. And so, so and you're worrying about things that are beyond your control and taking it as your own responsibility when the fact is that if you can't control it, it can't be your responsibility. It, it, it's, Nick, you can jump in here, but I feel like a lot of the times I, I'm we gonna, are the people. I, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to jump in because I feel like I'm in this position very recently. And John, same page. Take everything personally. It's like the moment something – it doesn't even have to be bad. It can be like, hey, you know, like I didn't like this. Or, hey, could you just make sure you email me at the end of the day and let me know what you're doing tomorrow? It's like the fact that I didn't email them the, the day before will literally haunt me the rest of the week. And I'll, I'll – I'll, we'll, I used to drive home from the podcast. Now I am home, but I would drive home from the podcast thinking about it and like, you know, just beating myself up. But it on, on Ed's side, it's like, he's absolutely right in the sense that we can't take it personally. And I know that's way easier said than done. Maybe we need a Zen master, but the, the, the fact of the matter is what Ed, you said is this isn't life or death. And I oftentimes have to remind myself and, you know, even more recently, it's like we have, you know, we have a project that we're wrapping up and it's always the wrap up. It's always the very end of the project where it's like, man, we, we, we forgot to ask for extra time based on all the additional scope we added, or we, we never accounted for certain things. And it's like, rather than just like taking a breath and saying, Hey, we just need an extra week. 
it's hey we need to cram every like cram all this work into you know the the <sighs> remaining time we have left and then everyone gets stressed out where it's like okay even if they're upset with the fact that it's a week late it's not life or death it's not like they can't in this particular case it's not like they can't move in it's it's at the end of the day it's everything's gonna be just fine and we go through these wild emotions of like stressing ourselves out to appease one particular uh decision based on you know thousands of decisions we've made up to this point and it just it goes into this unnecessary spiral and i do i feel like you know a few days of of thinking this way i i was driving home one day and i'm like what am i doing like why like this is i'm i'm stressing myself out i'm stressing my team out my team knows i'm stressed out it's like this isn't i i i just for the sake of my team like i the the you know i'm calling myself the leader here but it's like i can't be the i can't be stressed that's not good that's not a good look and it's gonna look it's it's just you're supposed to be the guy that diffuses things right and And it's like and 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 the fact of the matter is I wasn't, I was, it was becoming, I, it was, I was letting it snowball because I was taking it personal. But at the, but my, in my realization, it's like, no, we're doing, we're in this position because we we're committed to putting our best foot forward. We're committed to doing our best work always. in and I, I, I talk about this a lot is like, as long as someone can stand back and say, that's the very best I can do, that's all I ask. Because it's not, we're never going to be perfect. And I hate when people say, oh, yeah, per- you know, we can do this perfect. It's like, you, no, you can't. Like, I just, all I want you to do is do your very best. And Which, I have. Those are huge words. Those are big labels. Huge. It's, it's and, tough to have those involved. But it's, but, but it, like, that's, you know, what has been deemed the rip it out mentality. It's like, that's how we operate. If it's not your best, like it, it gets ripped out. And this is where like, you know, Ed earlier you said, there's no redo here. And it's like, I, I would argue that cause we redo a lot and it's, you know, and I, cause I pay for it, but it's like, because we're committed to, you know, that's what people are. People aren't paying for us to redo it. People are paying for it to be executed at a very high level. And that's what we're committed to doing. So always putting, you know, always doing your best is something that I hold really close to me. But is that where a lot of the pressure is coming from? Trying to maintain that standard and execute at that level at the scale that you are. I would say that's where the pressure is coming yet. Yeah. And a lot of that is probably spread thin as you are. Because that's what I was thinking. (laughs) That's how I feel. But like, no, I, I think it, that a lot of that is self-inflicted and 100%. Not, not necessarily because your customers aren't going to notice it, but because that's what you're selling to these customers. Yeah, and when these customers hire you, that's basically why you feel as though they're hiring you. And it would just, it would be the same thing as if you sold them on, we're going to get your job done in 10 weeks. Right. And you went over and you were like, we're a schedule driven company. Yeah. That pressure is coming from you the entire time and like you absolutely you brought that on before you even started the job which is like you're in someone the client could walk in and be like oh no don't do that you know i i i still don't even though you're pointing it out i still don't notice it it's okay it's still like it just the it's the way i'm wired right it's yeah like, but we, that like that's the entire basically 
what Ed's trying to say is Ed's trying to integrate a lifestyle into business where like you have certain thought patterns and you have a process of thinking and you approach life a certain way and you should be integrating that into your business because if you're wired that way, you need to make bigger decisions than business decisions in order to fix that. Nothing when you're in the office from 7.30 till 5.30 is going to fix that. There's way bigger issues in your life that need to get sorted out and the way that you think and the way that you react and the way that, you know, every part of your life plays into your daily, um, the way, I mean, it's basically just like that's who you are and you need to kind of restructure that in order to have a more successful business approach and everything else that I don't think that they're always so isolated and independent of one another. Nick, or even Tyler, you guys, is it, is there a point where you kind of, you have the throttle down and you're hammering away at all the details and everything. And I, I'm always at the same time I'm doing that. I'm always trying to like lift my head up. Like it's a submarine and try and just look around and be like, is this the point of no return where either I'm going to keep hammering away with all our guys and it's not going to get done still. And this is where I need to raise my hand. I do it with my guys all the time. I'm like, I, I do it on purpose because I want them to almost sense it. There's a sense that you have to have when you're in the project and go, I, I literally stand there and I raise my hand and, and John's like, what are you doing? I'm like, this is the exact point where we need to say we can't execute. If we're going to keep that time frame, I can't execute to that level. And this is when I need to raise my hand and go, I know it was an hour ago, it wasn't there, but right now it's, we're there where this is not gonna happen. And I've tried to relay that because I sometimes I think it's easier to teach it to guys than it is to actually implement it yourself on a project. Mm -hmm. And and I like that, you know, it's really tough cause it's like you get into it, you get into it in that snowball and then it gets heavier and you're like, I'm just committing to this and pride gets involved. And right. I, it's really where I'm like, you know what? And it, you, it, you do way more damage that way. Way more damage. And I, I really understand that it, you have, and I think a client, if it's not, because Nick, at the end of the project, Tyler, you have clients living there, but it like the closer you get to the finish line, the the ramp up of stress isn't just because of you. It's like they have, you get the, the text, I got movers scheduled and they can't move and you're like, they're movers. Aren't they supposed to be able to move? Like schedules and dates? <laughs> And then it's like you use that to diffuse it. And then it's like, oh, no, well, I got my mortgage is locked in. I got this interest rate. And it's like, dude, why are you piling all that on me? Like, do you want magic? Like, right. do you want this to be amazing? Or do you want me to throw it all out the window, hit this time frame? Because your mortgage guy said, you know, he's going to save you, you know, point zero zero five on your right. interest rate. Like, is that really what you value when you're right. in the house every day? And it is. It's like, you're absolutely right. It's the end where it's not just you that com that that is compounding. It's all or it's all of these things compounding into like this one final push. And it, it and you know even someone moving in and movers are locked in. It's like it's still not life or death. Right. Hey, sorry. How like you want the house executed at this level or do you want it completed by this date? One of them has to suffer. You're going to live like, with this execution for the next 15 right. years. So if you got to rent, if you got to stay with your parents or get a motel or, or find a short, like a Airbnb, whatever, like there's, there's a, a solution to all of that. I'm sitting here like working through these scenarios in my head. No, same way. Cause it's, but it's Ed's so over much there just calm as a cucumber and I'm over right? here stressed out. <laughs> hey, I yep. got it. John, I, I found in my book, you guys can see I have my book here. 
So this He's is reading my while quote. we're talking. <laughs> this is my my quote to you in answer to your your client who who, who didn't like her Le Cornet. It says, "You are never responsible for the actions of others. You are only responsible for you. When you truly understand this and refuse to take things personally, you can hardly be hurt by the comments or actions of others, such as the lady who cried when she didn't like the color of the Le Cornu oven." Well, we we gutted the entire kitchen. But um, how do we get? How do? How did you? Okay. My my thing was. At that moment, Ed, because so on my products, a lot of times you don't exist. So for me to be able to fix that situation, I had to make the hard decision and tell that client who had a 10 year plus relationship with that designer, it's time to move on and we're going to find you somebody new. So because I wrote this down because we kind of went down a rabbit hole, but like as the GC, we're the general contractor. We're, we're still the tallest guy in that totem pole, as Nick said, the leader. So we do have control over that. So if that happened and no one else stepped in, then I can't, cr- I can't trust that system. I can't trust the client and the decision-making. I can't trust the designer and what they did. So I have to then compile a team, whether it's the architect, bring in a cabinet designer just for kitchens and then bring in a designer for the overall aesthetics. So that's, that was my next move. I didn't just go, oh my God, what do I do? and take it totally personal. It's like, how do I solve this? And that's where the personal part came in is that, you know, if I just said, hey, this is on them, you know, this is their person, which I think a lot of people can do, then it's not on me, we'll, we'll just build it again, it's job security. But I did take it personal and it, I made that call. I remember, I remember I hated it because it was a phone call because I couldn't get the client because they weren't actually in the state at that moment when I was like, you know what, we have to change everything. We had to throw everybody out the window. Nick, you were at this job. This mm-hmm. is the big one. Mm-hmm. And it was like, that was a huge change for them because they had so much committed to that person, like from lighting. And I think that's really, like when I say lighting, hundreds of thousands of dollars of lighting that was designed where now it was like, now you second guess everything that designer touched, tile, the whole nine yards. That costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to do. So I guess now I'm more, I don't know how to do what you said because the more I, I try to explain this in the situation, the more I feel like I'm accountable for everything. Like that's what just, I. That's what I'm trying. That's what I keep trying to ask Ed. And like, it's probably you probably don't have the answer. You're you're there. You've you've taken these steps in your life to to get to a position where you you have accepted the fact that you can only control that and that you truly believe that. And I, I do. I, I I'm I'm envious of it, and I'm curious at what you know how you really got there like what was it the 10 day meditation retreat is it because i'll go on one so i you know so john i mean i see that what you did was you came from a place of caring and compassion which is like that's the cornerstone of zen is compassion and 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 that's but you came from that place that doesn't mean you took it personal i mean taking a personal means that you you feel like it's your fault and you're beating yourself up but if you came from that that place, as opposed to, look, my my client, I mean, she spent all this money and she hates the you know the the house. I don't want her to feel like that. I want to help her out. So I mean, I guess the end result is the same, but you have to look at where that that motivation came from. Is did it come from this place of compassion and caring, or did it come from this place of guilt and you know you mentioned pride. 
I don't think you can have pride unless you take something personal. So I, I'm not convinced that pride is always a good thing, you know? I mean, we talk about pride of craftsmanship and pride of work, but I think pride sometimes can, can be a, a double-edged sword. And I think sometimes it creates, um, you know, can create those, those issues that we're talking about here when taking things personal. Well, the, the saying is, you know, pride getting in the way. Yeah. Right. I, I just feel like I, I'm how old are you, Ed? Fifty seven. Alright, so I got seventeen more years before I, I can call myself yeah, right. like That's I'm it. Zen and I can deal with it. So So the other thing I, I wanna I wanna cover too is the other thing about taking things personal is to realize that that's what creates conflict in most of our situations. So one of the key things I talk about is reducing conflict in construction projects, right? We, I mean, that's one of the biggest things we have in construction projects, is conflict, right? So li listen to this quote. When you take things personally, then you feel offended. And your reaction is to defend your beliefs. And that's what creates conflict. So you make something big out of something so little because of your need to be right and to make everyone else wrong. So if you want to reduce conflict in your construction projects, try not to take anything personal. Hmm. It's really hard. Yeah. I'm yeah. No, it's very hard. I mean, that's, and that's why I, I talk about, I mean, this book, you can, the book is, is whatever, 110 pages. You can, you can read it in a night and it takes a lifetime to practice. These are not, I mean, these are very simple, but they're not easy. Yeah, I think I the, mean, most, it, the most, the most, difficult part of not taking things personally is anything that you were very passionate about that you pour everything into it's tough even if you can basically relinquish yourself of any responsibility for somebody's unhappiness or the issues it's still tough because you feel there's a certain ownership that you have there and it is it's difficult to kind of absolve yourself of that and say I'm not going to take this personally. I did the best that I can because the whole reason you're there in the first place is because you care and you're passionate and you want the best for your customers. So it's, it's a tough, I think that integrating that again is more of a lifestyle than just saying, you know, I'm not going to take this personally. It's, it's way more complex than that. Yeah. hundred percent. I think, I'm the only thing that's making me feel more comfortable with taking things personal is that I know if I'm going to build something with my heart and soul and, and give a dwelling like a soul to it, it's going to have a personality, then it's going to come along with a little bit of this kind of battle I have internally that, that I'm going to have to deal with that. That's kind of the fun part of it. And I, and I have to look at it as it being fun. If I don't, then I'm in the wrong game. You know, like th that's if I can make it through and have that stress and I'm going to work on these little moments where if I can see that that window where it's like, all right, that window's closing and I'm not seeing it in the last three hours of the job or three days or three weeks. I'm seeing it the three month marker. Then I'm, I'm I'm chalking that up to experience that I'm not just flying by the seat of my pants and hoping this gets done. I'm using technology, my gut and my team to be able to do it. And it's like we had this talk today with a client. It's like, hey, we're going to be damn close. The reality of it is, you know, you should look for another place for rental. 
That's kind of the perfect thing. But I know I don't want to take away this trophy of you moving in in August because that's just what that is. It's a trophy. There's no purpose behind it. There's no difference. Your life doesn't change. It, it's There's still going to be a site around you that that's having work, but you've made it a trophy. And I think that's what I've learned over the years is that we build things up for these little moments that people want to have that trophy and go, no, we, we did this. We accomplished this. The reality is the accomplishment isn't the goal. The actual goal is you living in something that's amazing that you're going to live with and not have me sit in here with my cruise for the next month because you needed to hit that date that we're going to still be in there. Now, now you've ruined that whole relationship because you're there every day. And mm. it's trying to see that and, and I'm coping with it. I'm, I don't think I'll ever have it solved, but it's making me feel better about it. But I, I take things super personal and not so much the way that you just narrated it with that quote is that I think Matt Sargent, my architect, put it the best is that we, we, we the design is what we're going after. And, and that's what we're trying to accomplish. And it's not what I think is right, because there's there's carpenters on our job sites that are more experienced than me on technique. I, I look at it, I was lucky with an old boss that he always said, hey, what's your approach? And that's how I look at it too. But you still have to have the leadership, meaning I say this to everyone. It's like, if I walked onto every job and said, hey, how do you think you should do it? You know, and then painter's like, well, what about this? I'm like, what do you think you should do? What, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> like, I, I want to give people a voice. Don't get me wrong. But at a certain point, they are looking to you for an answer and you have to be that person. But I do want to take everything into consideration and I do want to question things that don't sound right because I am an advocate for that client or that designer that isn't there that I want to ask those. So when the client or whoever walks in and goes, hey, why is that cut like that? Well, A, I thought this is the best and B, I ran it by the designer or C, maybe I didn't do any of the above and I guessed. Like you get me like you need to have some sort of a rhyme or reason. And but if we're going to say in the beginning that, you know, with the passion that like Tyler said, we pour into it. Like I was at that client meeting and, and the architect was like, he pours everything into these projects. Then for me to turn around and go at nine o'clock or what at four o'clock in the afternoon, I turn my phone off or <laughs> something comes up and I go, all right, it's not life or death. Like you get me, they don't go hand in hand. So it is a really fine line. If I'm going to build with that personality and that passion and that blood, sweat, and tears and soul, then guess what? You're waking up at 3 a.m. most days of the week <laughs> on the weekends. I guess I'm not going to be a guy about quality. I mean, quantity where it's like, hey, I'm going to do 100 kitchens this year and make a ton of money. You get me? There are people out there and they make a great living and that's what they love. And they can turn their phone off at four. My ramble's over. Yeah. I, I just... I agree with you, John, on a lot of points. I I think there, and Ed, I feel like I'm starting to understand it, but that there's a disconnect between, you know, still having a personal touch and everything, but not taking things personal. And more so Sounds when, like an oxymoron. I, 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 maybe. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm not, not knocking you. I'm just no, saying I know, but it I think doesn't it's, make sense it's, to me. <laughs> it's more, it's almost more where it's like, when it doesn't go right, you can't take it personal. Where it's like you like Ed stop me anytime. Like I feel like when you know it's like hey you know really want to you know when they are upset about something it's like get, trying to remove that from you know yep. 
I, I just not taking that personal, like understood, like we, you know, I wish we hit that schedule too, but you know, we didn't, and this is the fact of the matter. And it's like, obviously they're upset, but knowing that there's so many other opportunities in this project for them to be really excited about. And if we sit and focus on the fact that we didn't hit the schedule, everything else is going to lack you know, attention, your, all your attention goes into focusing on the fact that we didn't hit, you didn't hit schedule instead of focusing on everything else that can, you know, turn out really great. Well, I mean, even on the flip side, like we have a client that was like, Hey, let's, um, let's hold off on the pool. And I was like, you know what, we'll just permit the pool and we can figure out, we have the permit in hand, blah, blah. And then we go, it's going to take this amount of time. So months ago we were doing this whole process. Then now the client goes, hey, why is it going to take so long to finish the hardscape? And to, to my point is, even if I, I can't turn to them and go, hey, remember that conversation we had three months ago about, you know, the pool permitting, you flip-flopped on the idea, decision-making, and this is what we did. You know, I still have to go, you know, I think this is the right path and this is where we're at. I can't turn on the client either. You get me? But I do feel better that I brought up those issues those ideas those concerns at the time because now this is the path they went down mm -hmm. but nick if i just sat back in that conversation two months ago and said you know what don't permit the pool we'll just do what they want to do i'm not the professional I don't, i'm not the person with the experience that didn't raise their hand at the time mm -hmm. so yeah if i'm going to be the one leading the ship down this whole process meaning especially for you for how much design you put into it like I'm just looking at all the stuff. You handle all the stuff from the millwork. Like the, the accountability chain for you, it's around your neck and getting tighter day to day. So like, Ed, I, will, Ed, I, will, I will confirm. Do you, <laughs> I feel like we're kind of hung up on this like responsibility thing. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's probably a lot more involved than just kind of absolving yourself of that like your entire principle behind this and the zen builder and everything else like that's an entire lifestyle that you integrate into every move that you make and it's it's not just one two three even in in what you're referring to the four agreements like that's just one part of this entire lifestyle this is something that you have to adopt and live and breathe in order to kind of integrate into your business, right? Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's an ideal, you know, it's kind of like the North Star, you never get there, you know, it guides your direction, but you never, you never, you never arrive. And so I think it's, 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 look, it's definitely ideals. I mean, the things we're talking about here, not taking things personally, doing your best, I mean, those are ideals that you really can, can't achieve all the time. But if you recognize those ideals and at least strive for them, um, then I think that's that's really the key. And it's look, I I fail all the time, right? I still get stressed, and you know, but every morning I'm sitting on my cushion for 30 minutes in my meditation, and you know, trying to kind of reorient myself and and take it back. And and you know, the thing too, Nick, when you were saying, you know, what's well, just about not taking it personally when things go wrong. Um, I think it's not taking it personally when things go right as well, because you, you can't really have it both ways. You know, you, you, if you're not going to take it personal, you can't take it personal when they go right or when they go wrong. It's kind of, 
you can't really turn that switch off. And so I think to your point, Tyler, that's where you have to really see it as this all encompassing, you know, part of your life. And it's not something you just, you know, a tool you pull out and you use it. Oh, today. Okay. This has happened. So now I'm not going to take it personal. Like you mm-hmm. really got to work on not taking anything personal. Yeah. I feel so. like you're, you're kind of manipulating something to work to your advantage where when it's convenient for you to kind of adopt this ideal, yeah, it's it's great. But then when it's not convenient for you, then you throw it out the window. And then I think that, that that's not actually living the lifestyle. Right. That's um, when it doesn't that's when it doesn't work, right? When you try to just kind of use this as a tool that you're gonna pull out when you need it. No, like, you know, the first one, be impeccable with your work. I mean, that's pretty crazy strong. That's like impossible. You know, how I don't know anyone who's impeccable with their work. So, but again, you, you can't, you know, you don't do that occasionally. You, you do that, you know, as much as you can. And, and it's something you constantly strive, strive to. Do you think there was an evolution of your experience that this burden, it grows to a point and then it kind of settles down? Meaning, I remember when I was a builder and I was younger and I was a carpenter and, you know, you kind of went through, the, you went through your motions and, and did your work. And then I had like kids and I was like, holy crap, none of these job sites are safe. Like to a whole different level. Like my eyes were open to, <laughs> like I had these little buffers on like blinders. And then I was like, wow, like what am I doing? And and then like I listened to people where I, I did a comment years ago on my story. And I was like, is it weird that every time the phone rings, I freak out? Like my mind, whoever's calling me, while it's ringing, I'm like thinking of the four things that possibly could be going wrong. It's not like, oh, dude, can't wait to talk to Jimmy. It's so that way when the even if it's a client, whatever it is, I've set myself up for the negative. Like whenever a client goes, hey, everything's going great. And I'm like, just tell me the butt. I'll just start with the butt. And then you can follow up with the amazing stuff. So and but people were like, you know, it's not like that. I'm like, you know what? When I was five years in, it wasn't like that. When I was 10 years in, it wasn't like that. Today, it's like that because I've seen houses catch on fire. I've seen people get hurt. I've seen all those things. So it's opened my eyes. It's like your kids when they're running around for the first time, every table, every corner of a couch, every single thing looks like an absolute nightmare. And I think that comes with experience. I guess my my long-winded question is, you know, you've been doing it so long. Do you get over that? Like my second kid, Dude, let the kid run wild. I'm not wrapping the kid with pillows. You know, he's yeah. going to be fine. It's funny because I think obviously to like you have to be pretty spiritual to have <clears throat> this outlook and this mindset and kind of devote a large portion of your life um, to kind of practicing what you preach. And I don't think that that's very common um, in our industry, I think that everyone's so busy and so crazy where it's like, I'm not going to wake up and take time for myself or practice these principles on a daily basis where so many of us could actually benefit from uh, adopting some sort of lifestyle or spirituality in that sense. And that's not necessarily religion. Um, but I think that kind of looking towards your core beliefs and your values and, even just habits in general um, that would definitely be beneficial to our lives and our businesses, especially with 
how much stress we deal with the timelines the deadlines the budget schedules and then all of the personalities yeah exactly tyler and i you know while it's it's construction i don't think it's unique to construction right there are a lot of really stressful jobs out there and you know the people that i've met at the various retreats and gatherings that I've had with Thich Nhat Hanh and at the Deer Park Monastery come from, yeah, very stressful jobs, you know, emergency room doctors or, you know, just a lot of different, and they're trying to find a way to manage that stress, to find a way to, to be able to handle those, those challenges and responsibilities. And, and it's, I think part of the modern world, it's just, you know, people, I talked to this with my dad. I'm like, God, you just don't even know what it's like, dad. You, you know, you used to like, you'd get the mail once a day and you could read it. And then it was, that was it. I said, I'm getting mail every, every minute, and, yeah. you know, and, they, and they expect a response immediately. That's the thing nowadays, right? Everyone expects a response so immediately that I think that's just increased our stress levels because, because of that. That's a great point. So what, I feel like when we talk about efficiency, we, people talk about their email um, process. So what is, like, what's your tactic with it? Yeah, good question. So I never send an email after six o'clock at night. I write a lot of emails after six o'clock at night, but I never send them. Unless it's to a friend or someone, but to a client, never send it after six o'clock at night. Mm. And the reason is because, a couple of reasons, one is, I don't want them to know that I work at night. I don't want them to be responding to me at night. And, um, and two, I think you get a much, you get their attention better in the morning. So I'll write a whole bunch of emails at night and then I'll either, you know, put them in a, in a delayed send and send them out in the morning, especially like if, a, if the client's East coast and I don't want to get up at, you know, five in the morning or three in the morning. So I'll just send it out at, you know, if I know they're an early riser, maybe they're up at five or six, I'll send it out at, you know, three in the morning here or two in the morning. And so it's the first thing they see in that morning in their inbox. And I think people are just fresher. Their, their minds are better. Uh, you send it that night before, even if they haven't seen it, then they're kind of like, oh, shit, I can't believe this is, you know, I've had this since last night or whatever. And so, yeah, so that's that's what I do. I, I, I write all my emails, lots of them at night, but I, I only send emails between like 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. And it's the same thing with text messages, you know, and I, I tell my clients, look, you know, this is not life and death. This is not, we're not doing surgery here. And I've got a life and I've got a family and I know you do too, and I'm going to respect you and you respect me. Now, they can send me an email and I might even craft my reply that night if I'm sitting at my computer working, but I never send it. What about an emergency situation? What if, uh, I mean, if it's an emergency, but you know, and if it's a client that, you know, is overseas or I know it's going to be hard to get a hold of them, then yeah, I'll say, you know, let's set up a, so it's case by it's case by case. You ever gotten an email that somebody's house was on fire? Well, I mean, they should be calling the fire department, <laughs> not me, right? My house we, is on fire. I'm going to send Ed an email. Ed, my house is on fire. What do I do? <laughs> Can you call the fire yeah, department? We're going to have to me? wait till the morning. All right. And that's what I goes back to what John said, too. It is. It's all about setting expectations. I mean, that's that's the first thing that you have to do with your clients is set set expectations. 
and and you set expectations by telling them that it's a prototype you're building. You set expectations by telling them it's not life and death. You set expectations. Another thing we really haven't talked about is this whole emotional component. You know, one of my my coaching colleagues in our our coaching business is named David Lutberger. He wrote this book called Managing the Emotional Homeowner. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with it, but it is just a great, great book about all of the emotions that a homeowner goes through. I feel like that's a great, that's a great book that everyone should be reading. <laughs> right? Yeah, I'll, it I'll, is. And I, I love, there's a chart in there. Um, uh, I, I, I could send it to you guys later, but anyway, there's a chart and it's the emotional roller coaster, the homeowner's emotional roller coaster. And it, it goes through and actually charts kind of where their emotions are going to be at certain times. So like, you know, as they're going through the planning stage, John, it starts really high. John, John literally drafted this up. I, you, you've got to have it sitting on your desk right there. He it's drew funny. this in like basically explaining the, the process in which it takes to build a home. I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil it. John, you can explain it. Yeah. Yeah. So at the bottom of it, it's it's going to go in our like right in the website. Nick and I have talked about it. Is is the process is really tough to explain, you know, like to get that brief overview, but yet people feel confident with what you're thinking. Meaning you want to get in their head. So when they're like, what the questions are, they're like, oh, that's the answer to that. So I wrote a, a kind of a um, a timeline for the project that you could then scroll over, and it would give you different like things that are going to happen throughout that process. And at the bottom of it. I put this red line that would go from red to blue that that would be your stress level throughout the product, meaning blue would be pretty cool. Everything's calm. These are the areas that you're going to get stressed out and these are why. And so it would be along the whole bottom of the timeline. So you're saying this and I'm like, that would be a good book. And then you said that. I'm like, oh, my God, I just sent it to the boys like last week. <laughs> that book, right? That's it. It's a $76 paperback. <laughs> Wow. Hot tip, okay, hot tip. Hot tip to the to the podcast listeners here. Guys, there's one you left on Amazon. Book, you can you can get this book for free if you log on to our website. So yeah. All right, how you, do I how do I cancel a, a purchase I just made on Amazon? <laughs> <laughs> hey uh uh Nick, can you can you let me screen share and I'll show you this I'll show you this chart. We can we can put it down for our our, our listeners here. Yeah. Uh, sure. Where are we? There we go. Oops. Hold on. Hold on. I think you have to. You got to. It's this new high security Zoom oh, thing. Yeah. You got to make me the presenter. Yeah. No. This is there when it happens. This is what it's called Zoom bombing. Dude, first time <laughs> someone's taken control of Zoom. This is. Awesome. I just gave him screen sharing. Kate. I'm excited right now. I'm excited to see what we're. Gonna I know, do. and I feel everyone's every. I feel like we're on a Rogan podcast when they're looking at the screen and no one, and like everyone's like, you know, I, I literally started watching his YouTube because they show what he's seeing. Yeah, I know that it's like, now I got to go watch this. It's like, I'm it's what, still, what? Uh, Nick, it's still not letting me. It says host has disabled participant screen share. Did I, really? <laughs> Nick has a control issue. <laughs> uh, just send it to me. I'll, uh, <laughs> hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, there we go. Who can, uh, there that was awesome. <laughs> Just send it to me. 
There we go. Okay. There All right. What here are we, we looking go. at here? The homeowner's emotional, emotional roller, coaster. roller coaster. So see, this is kind of, it's a little like yours was more linear, John. I don't know if that's like the way you think, but this, this one's more like the roller coaster, right? So you see they're like at a hundred percent when design starts, right? And then they kind of starts to go down and they get really excited when they go to working drawings. And then by the time they get to the contract, they're like, their mood level is super low. And then the minute they start demo, shoot back up to 100%. And through demo and rough framing and roof deck and windows, like everything's great. And then what happens is you start that process of rough in that takes like months, right? Mm-hmm. And the problem is during the framing stage, they get so excited because every day they show up and there's like a new, a new room built. Mm-hmm. And they're like, come, this is incredible. Like on Monday, we just had the living room and now we got the bedrooms and tomorrow's the kitchen. Like we're going to have this house done and like it's a room a day, you know? So they get used to that that pacing during the during the, the framing stage. But then when you start rough end and you're doing plumbing and electrical and heating, you know, for weeks it goes by and you're like, I don't get it. I just came last week. You guys have done nothing. Nothing's changed. You haven't built a thing. So by the time you start hanging the drywall, they're just totally discouraged. Oh my God, this thing is gonna take forever. There's nothing's happened in the last month. And then you start hanging the drywall, they get excited, they're like, Wow, I can start to feel these spaces and and then you start, uh, you know, taping and texturing and sanding and the place becomes a mess. And once again, they keep showing up every Friday and nothing's changed. It's like, I don't get it. There's just dust everywhere. So that's the worst part. And that's what we think is really the lowest part is at the end of drywall sanding. Glad because we there's no finishes. There's no finishes. Nothing's going on. And then you start with all the fun stuff, the sexy stuff, the trim, the tile, the painting. And then, of course, once again, they get so excited. They're like, oh, God, the house is done. We're going to throw a party. And you're like, no, no, no. We got to do all the finished stuff. We got to do punch lists. And it's another month. And then they get so disappointed. And then finally, the thing's done. But, um, you know, I've had contractors who will actually send their clients like a bottle of wine in drywall sandy when they're done. And just like, hey, you know, just wanted to send you something and, just, you know, wanted to let you know we've got through the roughest part. Now the fun starts. Now we're going to start with all these great finishes that I made you select a year ago. Yeah. Nick Nick sends a case. Case, yeah. Yeah, send uh, a case. Well, I guess the only thing I have that's different than this one is I know it's emotional, but I think it's also anxiety. Like you just noted that a lot of times people make selections ahead of time. When they start seeing these selections that they made even three months prior, all that, like all the tile arrives, all the trim arrives, all the cabinetry arrives, and then you're doing paint colors. That's a super, super anxious moment. And here it, it shows it as like they're back interested again. Mm-hmm. They might be interested on, on my timeline and in, in my schedule. It was more of like, this is where your anxiety is going to build up. So be prepared for it, meaning all the bills will start coming in, but then all the stuff you picked months prior actually show up and you get this sec, like, second guessing that happens so that's what i'm putting in mind is that it's those little moments where people are like wait a minute like the outside do i how do i pick that that exterior color like this is things that will make us anxious but you know this is more of like hey where do you see the most productivity and like you tell people it's like you get excited when you see the house go up then it's the same drive up for the next three months (laughs) because it's all interior it's all as i put it it's the, the the veins and you know the, the, the you know the, the the arteries the arteries no it's also arteries. like you know all these little things that kind of i think that a like, lot of the questions and anxiety comes at finish stage because that's the language that the homeowners can speak 
Um, they don't understand the rough framing. They don't understand the mechanicals, the rough ends, all of that stuff. And I think once they start seeing finishes, trim, doors, cabinetry, tile, that's something while they may not understand it, they can actually see it. And then they start thinking, you know, is this going to go good with, well with this light fixture? Is this going to work with the countertops that we select? And I think that's where a lot of that anxiety comes from. You're now at a, a stage of the project that your customers can speak and see that language and understand it some. Yeah, but it's also the fact that what you can change in the frame stage costs very little. Yeah. But once they realize that they don't like it at the finish stage, it gets it very... It, the fuse is so much it's been lit for six months <laughs> so now it's like oh boy so it's really like my guys know i'm not really looking for them i'm looking for what they their eye looks at a little too long when they walk into the house like that's that's how i'm reading them is like what do i need to fix and i go stand at their exact spot when they walked in what they stare at for an extra three seconds like what are they looking at that's what they're concerned about but they don't know how to, to say it they don't know how to to verbalize it they just don't know what feels right and they don't know how to say it so it's finding how you get there for them and tyler i think you bring up a really good point too which is that that you know even if they pick the selections out months before once they actually see it in a house and they see the color combinations together and they're like oh wow i didn't realize you know yeah i saw cut sheets and you know it all looked great on my my designer's, you know, color board. But now that I see it in, you know, real person, it's, they, 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 they it's stressful for them because they yeah, can't. I feel like they start second guessing every decision that they made at that point. And it's oftentimes it's halfway through that process or the quarter of the way through that, where the entire room hasn't come together and they're questioning the tile selection without the paint color and it's just like just wait until it's all done and it'll come together and if you don't like it at that point we'll address it but addressing it at every single stage up into that point doesn't make any sense yeah that's why it's tough for a tv show like they don't they get to make a selection and they come at the end yeah yeah that's you know i think there's two two things that have really caused our jobs to be much harder in these last 10, 15 years. One of them is Google and the whole internet thing. The other one is, is television, whether it's, you know, HGTV or just, you know, this, this persona of the dishonest contractor, you know? Um, have you guys ever seen the, uh, show? It's not on anymore, but, um, uh, you know, Adam Carolla, right? The, the yeah. comedian. So he did a show called, um, um, what was it called? Um, catch a contractor, catch a contractor. And so he was basically like, it was a kind of a comedy show, but he would, he would get a contractor that had walked off the job and he would like set up a sting to get them back, you know, to finish up and they'd be like half done kitchen and then he'd get them to come back and then he'd turn the lights on and like embarrass them and get them to like finish the job. And, um, it was just the craziest show. I mean, it was good for entertainment, but it just was propagated in my, in one of my talks, I, I show the casting call that he has, you know, and it's something like, you know, got screwed, you know, were you taken by that, you know, that, that terrible dishonest contractor? Well, you know, we'll make that SOB pay, you know, we'll, we'll set up a sting and we'll make him, make him make it right. And it's just, 
the kind of thing that like you'd watch one episode and you never want to hire a contractor ever again. You'd right. just be like, they're all, it's all contractors catch a predator. Crooks. <laughs> Which is yeah. like one of the worst yeah. shows I've ever seen. Yeah. I forgot about and, that. And what I tell, you know, what I tell my crowd is I say, you know, and maybe as an owner's rep, but even as a business coach, I've had way more instances of dishonest homeowners than I have of dishonest contractors, you know? Whether it's contract, you know, homeowners that don't want to pay their last payment or, you know, just a lot. I think I've had many more issues with dishonest homeowners than dishonest contractors. But but that doesn't make a good story. Right. There's there was a bunch of Citibank commercials, um, the ones where they did them where it's like, you know, why don't you just say what you really mean? And like the contractor sitting there, and he's like, oh, OK, so we're going to take out this load bearing wall. You know, it's it's totally it's going to totally double the cost of your job. It's going to take twice as long, but that's fine because I'll make more money on it anyway. And the wife is like, oh, that's great. Okay, well, I can't wait to start, and I'm going to watch and question your every move. And it's just <laughs> one of those where it's just this complete lack of trust. And, uh, and that's the problem is that I think when we go into these, we go into a meeting and you realize that if they've watched one of these shows or they've seen these advertisements, they're just coming from a place where you're already – you know, they, they, they don't trust you. So you like have to work extra hard to build their trust because they already think that you're some dishonest, you know, corrupt contractor. Do you think this is what leads, you know, we, we've danced around it a couple times, but let's get into what you do with coaching. Is this what leads you or leads these contractors to reaching out is that they're having issues with homeowners or do you think it's coming from a different side of the business? Um, sometimes it's, it's about homeowners, but I would say, I mean, most of our business coaching is clients that they're great builders and they know how to build, but they don't know how to manage their business and they don't know how to manage their clients. So, yeah. So what and is, I think, good, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that managing the business is probably a bigger factor than managing the clients, but, but we definitely do deal with both of those in our coaching practice. You say we, who is we? So we is myself and my two, my two uh, partners, which is uh, David Luperger, the guy we just talked about that wrote to managing emotional homeowner and a guy named Paul Sanneman, who was actually kind of an interesting story. So back when I hired my life coach, I actually about six months later got approached by a business coach and that business coach was Paul Sandman. So Paul was really instrumental in guiding me through my whole, I mean, he helped me kind of build the whole Zen builder thing and develop my public speaking and my, my consulting business. And so then we started coaching together. And so, and then about a year ago, we formed this residential contractor services group. David joined our group. And so there's the three of us. And it's really great because Paul, Paul's been doing this for like 30, 35 years. He's never run a construction business, but he's just a really smart guy, just really understands contractors. And that's all he's done for 30 years is exclusively coach contractors. And then you've got David who comes from 25 years as a remodeler and developed all these great programs and wrote the home, Emotional Homeowners book and all that. And then they have me who's the kind of the more of the homeowner liaison guy and then I'm also kind of the tech guy because I'm at 57. I'm the youngest of the team by 10 to 15 years. So, um, so I'm kind of the guy that's more into the, you know, I was the early adopter of the cloud-based systems and 
and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, so the three of us work together as coaches and it's a great, really complimentary uh, team that we, we work together. So you, you say it's primarily based around business, like the structure of your business. So what, you know, what specifically are you, are you helping put together SOPs or are you just really helping? Um, well, I guess, yeah, is that, that, that's, that would be my question. Yeah. So, you know, again, it's kind of like my ownership business. Every client is different. And mm-hmm. so, you know, some people need help with SOPs. That's really David's expertise. Um, it just depends. I'll tell you, though, a couple of things. I think there's three main mistakes that we find that most of our clients make. Um, and it's the first one is that they're not marketing all the time and they don't recognize that they really are like Nike. I mean, Nike's a marketing company that sells shoes to support their marketing. And we tell our, our contractor clients, it's really the same thing. You are a marketing company, not a building company. You're a marketing company, you have to market in order to do what you love to do, which is building. Agreed. And then the second mistake that most contractors make is that they're not always hiring. And this is something that you're really being magnified now during mix, mix like check, <laughs> check. <laughs> can I get a big check? <laughs> mix, mix like, can we have hold you on, on next? On. Don't can skip, we have don't you on next week? <laughs> <laughs> well, repeat. so can you can you hire too much? <laughs> hold on, before Ed, before you go on to number three, n- number two, you're not hiring too much. Elaborate on that, or you're not hiring no. enough. Right. So what, what we say is it's like you should treat your construction company like a football team. And what we mean by that is that you have different, you know, you don't, a football team doesn't just have one quarterback, right? They've got a first string quarterback, second string quarterback, third string quarterback. So like you should always have, like you should always be looking for project managers. And you have your, your top, you know, best project managers, you have your junior project managers, and you should just always be running an ad, always keeping an ad, you know, like you should just on your website have opportunities available and your key top two or three positions, you should just always have them available. Always be looking for people because you just never, right, right now is the best time to hire mm-hmm. in construction. We, we, we actually have a recruiting service as part of our, our, our coaching business. Um, and our, our, I just got off the phone with our recruiter, head recruiter before we got on this call. And it's incredible the, the talent that he's finding because, you know, people are, are industry jumping right now. They're, you know, they might've yeah. been in hospitality or they were in, you know, uh, entertainment and they're like, Hey, huh, my, my job is not coming back for the next year or two. I, I you know, I want to be in a business where I see some future. And so what's everyone doing? Everyone's stuck at home. Everyone's like, well, God, everyone's going to be at home for, you know, whoever knows how long I'm going to go into the home, the home industry. So, you know, we're seeing really experienced guys that have great project management from, you know, maybe they've run a hotel or they've done something, you know, in, in, uh, in transportation or whatever, but they don't have any construction experience, but they know how to manage people or they know how to manage projects and, and we're finding, finding really great people. And the same thing too really applies to subcontractors, right? You know, every, all of your major trades, I'm sure, or I hope that all you guys do this, you don't just have one electrician, right? You got your main electrician, you got your secondary electrician, you probably should even have a third one just in case you never know when you need that. But, um, and the, the other mistake that I think contractors make, which is really funny is like, 
if you're not Nick, I don't know how good your electrical skills are, but my guess is that you have an electrician that you would use, right? You would not hire an electrician. I mean, you wouldn't try to do it yourself. No. Okay. Not on so, a client's but, <laughs> right. But my guess is that if you needed to hire someone, you'd probably go, oh, I can do this, right? I'll run, run, run the ad in Indeed or Monster. Or, he, he like, get you three try quotes. to do it yourself. <laughs> yeah, get three quotes. <laughs> no, but that's the, and that's the problem we tell our clients. We're like, hey, you don't, you, you're smart enough to know that you can't build this yourself. You go out and hire the best people you can as subcontractors. Why wouldn't you hire someone to do your recruiting? Why do you think you should be able to know how to do recruiting and find your best people? Um, that's not your skill set. You know, you should hire someone to do that. Is that was that number three? No, number three wow. is, so number one was that, right, they're, they're not marketing all the time and we can, that's a whole other, we could do a whole podcast on that. Yeah. Two is the recruiting. Third thing is that they, they don't adopt technology fast enough. Very slow. Contractors as a whole are, are really slow to adopt technology. Now, I'm guessing that that's not probably the case with at least some, if not all of you, but... Um, but, you know, and Paul tells a story, you know, 25 years ago when he tried to get people to bring cell phones to the job. And they're like, oh, no, that just interrupts the flow. I don't need a cell phone, you know, or emails. I remember when, when I first showed up at a job with a trio. You, are you old enough? You guys are old enough? Yeah, to I had one. Right? Yeah. And, and that same guy, the guy that I told you about at the beginning, that was like, you know, I don't know what the hell you're doing here. I show up at this tree. I'm like, Hey, Brian, look at this. I can, I don't have to go back to my office. I can read emails and like answer my client now, right from the job site. He's like, why the hell would you want to do that? That just interrupts your day. Like just screw that. Just, just write to them at night. I mean, come on. If you had to mail a letter, they wouldn't get it for three days. So yeah, you know, they're just very slow. And I think nowadays that the slow adoption is, is really with the cloud-based construction management systems, um, I'm curious what you guys, if you're like, you're out there, like what percentage of your competitors would you say are using cloud-based construction management system? Less than 20%. I don't know. I, that's I would have that's no a, idea. That's a total guess. I, I don't know, but based on what conversations I've had with other like clients or, you know, prospective clients, there's been multiple conversations where it's like, oh yeah, they, you know, you're the only one that's ever even mentioned something like that. Right. So, and I, like when I talked to, you know, Dan Houghton, right. It, you know, or, or, or Donnie, um, Wyatt from, from, uh, co-construct and ask those guys. And I think they're, they're thinking the adoption rate is yeah. Around 15, maybe 15 or 20%. Wow. So if you think about that, what an incredible competitive advantage that you have, if you're going and making, and again, back to what, you know, Tyler was saying, how you don't want to compete on price, you want to compete on something else. Imagine what kind of competitive advantage you have if you show up for a new client meeting and you bring your, your iPad, your tablet, and you're like, yeah, we use Builder Trend. You know, here's, it's all based on the cloud. Here's what your construction schedules are going to look like. Here's what your, your budgets and, and just that in and of itself can mm -hmm. be enough to, to, to separate yourself from your competition. I'd agree with that. And I think the marketing thing is huge and it's, you know, I work with a bill, uh, a coach and we recently had a conversation about sales and marketing and he stopped me and corrected me and said, it's marketing and sales. Marketing comes first, sales come second. But it's, it's, it's funny because we started doing it kind of like 
you know, looking at past, like when, when we were marketing or when we were looking to, to, uh, you know, or in sales mode and it, it was an up and down chart and it's like, Hey, I need jobs. Let's go market and then get sales. And then, then stop. It's like, and I think about it recently, it's like, you know, where we have a, a tremendous amount of work, you know, for the next year at this point. And I see myself scaling back on the sales, but it's like, why, you know, or I'm sorry, on the marketing, it's like, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I actually don't want to be scaling back. I want to be focused on it so I can then start building out the next year and the next year. Cause you know, one of my goals for my business is to be booked 24 to 36 months out and be working on projects, you know, for 12 plus months. And you know, it's, it, 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 it's very, I, I don't know the reason for it, I guess, but I, I would agree with you that that is probably, you know, for me is definitely a huge issue is that I see that marketing and uh, marketing in general, um, you know, is, is something that a lot of us mess up. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, already look, construction is inherently cyclical because our clients are never long-term clients. You know, other, other businesses, you can have a client for five years, 10 years. But I mean, if you have a client for five or 10 years, you're either doing something wrong or, you know, they're the people that are buying a new house every couple of years, which is great, but there's not a lot of those out there. So inherently within our, we're always working to replace ourselves, right? We're always working to complete the projects. And so it's a cyclical kind of, you know, there's a cyclical nature to our business. And if we try to respond to that cyclicalness by turning our marketing off and on, it just magnifies that and makes that those those ups and downs those sine waves even steeper so the only way you try to flatten those sine waves is by doing a consistent marketing building it up and continuing it's just like coke i mean does coke need to market no but they do right i mean coke never stops marketing it's not because they're trying to sell more more soda water. I mean, it's just, that's what they, they know that's what they do. They have to always be marketing and developing that, that brand and that image. So Nick, what's the and construction companies are no different. Nick, what's the comfort level by being booked out that far? Like, what, what are you trying to get? Like, I, I found that sometimes the bigger jobs aren't the more profitable ones, but they give you security that you needed. What, what's the goal behind being booked for that far out? Spending more time on planning and I, I just, I've said it all along is I, I like that process. I like all the preparation, the thinking through the thoroughness and spending that time. I mean, we have a project that we just signed on that we're going to spend 10 to 12 months designing and planning on it before we start construction. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, beyond that, yeah, it's, it's, it is a little bit about the security to be able to book that far out and spread our projects out a little bit further, take on longer length projects. So, you know, rather than trying to make 10 sales a year, I'm trying to make, you know, maybe five. So it's, I'm, I'm spending less, ultimately less time on trying to get new leads or new sales and more time in, you know, on like on the business, on the, on what we're doing you know, being, being there to support the, the team and the execution and things like that.
good or bad answer. And I, <laughs> I feel like, uh, well, as a, well, I, I would say as a business coach, Nick, I think you have to do that. I mean, that, that's the key thing is that we, all of our clients struggle with working on their business instead of in their business. Right. And I actually, I genuinely, I, sorry, I genuinely enjoy working on the business. Um, there's a lot of things in the business that I, I really don't enjoy that I still do despite how many people <laughs> I've hired. It's, you know, there's still things that I do every day. It's like, I, I don't want to be doing this, but I need to. And, you know, ultimately I would love to be strictly working on the business and then being involved with the day to day from the sense of being on the job site, you know, communicating with the guys, seeing how things are being done, offering my, uh, my opinion and my advice on things, being creative. That's what, you know, that's what I am. I'm, I'm a creative. And when we run into tricky situations, you know, that's one thing I know I'm good at is I can work through and come up with a solution really quickly and it can, and maybe it's wildly creative or, or, or really simple. It doesn't matter. It's I'm, I'm help. I can help move that along really quick. So ultimately like for me personally, that's what I want to be doing is focusing on that and on, and on the business, not the day to day running, you know, anything to do with the financial side of it. The like, yeah, I want to be involved with it and see the report, but I don't want to be, doing any data entry. I don't want to be doing takeoffs and estimating and things like that, but I am. You think but how that, does that, yeah, yeah, yeah I don't see yeah. how the pipeline, yeah. I don't see how the pipeline, like you having a longer pipeline changes that. Oh, I, I don't think I was, I don't think I was trying to relate those two. It's just two different goals. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, Cause I, now Nick has about a million goals. Um, I just think that, you know, having, having a, a pipeline that's full, can create its own issues that that they're not like having this the issues you're having right now I, like i've said it to you since i met you is hire a gm mm-hmm. like find someone that's seasoned that can do that stuff that can help structure your day-to-day stuff so you can be that inventive energy guy yeah that that clients love about you your 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 subs and your your employees it's just it's being able, you always have to focus on the business. I've said it to a hundred people. Every time someone goes to me, he goes, oh, you know, I'm booked for like two years. And it's like, you could be out of business in 12. Right. It means nothing. The security right. you get from signing these contracts and them, you taking a deposit and then, oh, then telling you yeah, in 12 months, hey, you know what? I found someone that's available that you've given me the time to go look for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And that's all gone. And it's just like, no, you have to then it, play the long game. Mm-hmm. It, that's all I ever say is the long game. It, it's always have the fundamentals and the execution. And, and the hardest part at about what you said about like subs and all that, like I I have this thing about telling people that I've had guys for 15, 20 years. Like there's something to be said about that. You know, they may have had guys come and go in their crews, but yet I've always stuck with them, good or bad. The execution is the same, and it's the same faces. They know, you know, we speak construction, and and they're part of my family. And that's, I do take that probably too serious, you know, and I have a hard time. I give them the benefit of the doubt, let them grow with me or, you know, shrink or however it's going to be, and then use them as, you know, they may have been a bigger crew, and then I shrink them down because who they have is really good at certain things. Maybe they now become my stair guy when they used to be my full trim crew. You know, so I guess it's, I think what's missing from this industry is loyalty. 
um, from both the consumer end of it and from the GC end of it, and even our subs, is that, you know, I've joked about this in a big project we had. We bid out the project, and it was, you know, they bid it, and it was 80 cents a square foot for plaster. And by the time that project came around the plaster, the market changed. They could have gotten a dollar thirty a square foot. So I got a third of their crew because guess what? That's what the market gave me at that time. So when, when you talk about early on, the options sort of like that same meeting I had last week, in the bid sheet, it was like, hey, you have three options for a contract. You have GMP, guaranteed maximum price. You have cost plus, and then you have cost plus with like a fixed fee and stuff like that. And it's like, you'd be, everyone, every client wants a GMP because they just feel like the security that comes along with that locked in number, even though they don't realize the reality of it is when things go up and down, whether it's cedar or this plaster, you have to then, you know, liquidate or dilute the quality somewhere else to get the numbers to even off. So like I said at that meeting without hesitation, Nick, even though you asked me something earlier and I boggled it, it was like, <laughs> no, it, it's cost plus. And if you want to have some security, I'm happy to fix my fee. So that way you don't feel like I'm incentivized to add something or do this change or whatever it is. And that change order might have management in it because it's it, we're handling more of it. But that's a one case you know, item, meaning we'll take it case by case. And the architect totally jumped in and said, that's the right way. I don't want to make the overall product suffer because a tariff went on Canada for cedar. And now mm -hmm. the whole outside of this house is designed for cedar in the roof. And then where do we get it from? Where do we steal it from? The quality of the hardwood floor and I try and you know s sneak in a, a character grade for the hardwood flooring. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. And that's what we talk about it here because I, I know I have clients that listen to this. And some are future clients that we have a, a deal signed with them that we haven't done. It's always like, what did I say? But it's the reality <laughs> of it is that, you know, to be transparent is to is to say these things. And that's when you're at the meeting and there's a guy before you and a guy to follow you. Your impact that you leave behind is these things that no one else has said, but it's reality. If I could drop my mic, it's attached to a stand, but I can't. <laughs> And uh, I think, uh, let me go back to, to what you were saying, Nick. And I, I like, if it was our client and they said we had a, you know, two year backlog, I would tell them you either need to raise your prices or increase the size of your crew. Like, I, I don't think that's like necessarily a good goal to have two years of backlog. Yeah. Think about it, Nick. Two years ago, if you were charging what you were charging then, now. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what I would that mean? <laughs> I guess it's not so much the time frame. I think it's more the, my my want to spend more time and 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 design and th thinking things through. It's so incredibly frustrating. That's what I'm most frustrated with in our projects is that we go into these things and we're still figuring things out. And oftentimes, it it gets into this rip it out mentality where I'm 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 ending up paying for it because it wasn't thought out to a manner that netted a result that I was happy with. Well, here's the thing, Nick. Whenever Tyler talks, I think it applies directly to me. He said something earlier. I forget what it was, but I, I literally looked up like he was talking to me. Mm -hmm. But, like, do you feel like, like, I think Tyler can do that mentality. Tyler can go into something where it's not 100% vetted out because he's controlling all of it, and as he says, he's giving 100% to that client. So for you and me, how do we take on this creative approach that's fun 
mm-hmm. but then have to then delegate to a team that A, isn't experienced enough, and I'm saying that 100% with my guys, meaning what we do right now with our specs and some of our other products is we take seven pages of a document and create an amazing home. Mm-hmm. That's because I'm there every day. Right. And it's going to take, let's throw it right, three to seven years for my guys to do what we do right now every day. That, to be able to John, you that. and I, we talk about it all the time. It's so, it's very hard. It's, you know. But we, we say it's the creative part that we love, but then it's like, you know what, if I'm going to build a team and be able to pull away, then mm-hmm. I need to then up my game with architects and designers that like the, the drawings I went to on Friday, those were 45 pages and they came with a 45 page. I mean, Ed, Ed you know, laugh at that. It's like the prelim. It's like the intro to your projects. But like that was enough that I'm like, dude, this is dynamite. Like yeah. this is what I need. And there's no questions. Now I, c- I can feel comfortable leaving and leaving a superintendent and a PM there where there's no question in execution, even what was bid from our subs. Maybe you know, I'm contradicting every- myself. I don't know. Well, no, I, my it, point was is that, like I said earlier, that if I'm going to play with this whole blood, sweat, and tears and heart and soul thing, then yeah. i got to deal with the stress because I'm, I take accountability and I take a personal that if we want to play the game of creativity, then we need to either change our personnel to be able to accommodate this creativity, meaning yeah. have a designer on tap that can then dig into these details, or maybe we should be playing in the creativity bubble. Yeah. This is what I've said to myself. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Uh, it's go ahead, Ned. Uh, well, I was going to respond to your other comment that you said you like to work on your business instead of in your business. You know, and I think I mean there are a lot of contractors that do that. We always encourage our clients. I mean, that's what we do as business coaches is mm-hmm. is helping them to do that. The reason why so many contractors can't do that, even if they enjoy it is because of the nature of our business. You know, we are in a crisis management business. Every day we're putting fires out and we're dealing with crises. And oftentimes we're forced to deal with what's most urgent, but not necessarily what's most important. And so the important things like working on your business get eclipsed by the urgent stuff that you got to deal with that day, but isn't in the long term as important as your long term planning and business development. And right, which is why that stuff usually happens at night or the weekends or after hours. And it's like, and it gets your, it gets your 50% energy into it. And the, the, it suffers where it's, you're absolutely right. It's day to day, it's answering what my guys are running into. Or, hey, this is going to hold up the job if I don't get an answer on it. It's like, not the end of the world. I have more important things to do. But, I, you know, what? I know the answer to it. I might as well answer them. And then that happens a hundred times. I think that so many of the details that you struggle with or your guys struggle with on jobs, Nick, also come down to experience. And that's not to knock anyone. But I think that a lot of those issues, there's there's opportunity to foresee those issues or at least address them or kind of make that job come together in a way that it's less noticeable. But Mm -hmm. I think with experience, you have more foresight where, Hey, I know that's going to be a pinch point down the road. So a lot of, a lot of it's learning on the fly right now, um, which stinks for you, especially at the scale at which you're growing. Um, so that's, that's the decision where it's like, do we bring somebody in with more experience and then we're breaking bad habits or do we just let this play out and hope that people stay on board 
and gain the experience that they need to because every every mistake that they're making it's not intentional but that's there's a lesson to come from that and Mm -hmm. on the next job a similar detail won't have the same mistake but it's going to take a long time and a lot of money to get there it's it's tough at the scale that you're doing it and with you know the amount of experience that everyone who's working for you has well i mean it goes back to what ed said too it's like it's a prototype and that's exactly you know every job we do is different but we're also going to more and more detailed jobs every single time so it's like yeah we're gonna make you know a handful of mistakes on this job we're gonna fix them it's gonna come out great and then when we go to the next job we're gonna be prepared not to make those mistakes again the problem is that next job is even more complex and those those mistakes that we can't make we won't but now we're going to run into a whole nother slew of them because we're dealing with more complex and it's it's always been that way and that's just been the nature of it but you're right i mean you know chalk it up to experience and you know being it's it's totally self-inflicted i uh, it it and it's not anyone's fault and it's not that anyone's doing it intentionally and that's kind of the nature of the beast with the jobs that you're doing i just think that those are the type of jobs where somebody would land you know one two of them a year and be like these are the subs that are going on this job and this Mm -hmm. is the guy that's going on this job because i know that this basically mandates or necessitates that level of detail and i think that every one of your jobs are like that so i mean who are you throwing at each job it's you know if you have your best guy on one job you can't spread them all over the place so it's yeah it's it's, it's tough yeah because like every job that you're landing is that one that the two that people want a year where they're putting their good guy or their good team on and you don't have a you don't have a a, a b string a c string like ed was saying earlier that it you need to have all top tier people for every single job there's no break well I won't take it personally. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Say that to yourself tonight. I'm going to. Before you go to bed. (laughs) I just downloaded the, the, I don't even remember what it's called. The four book, the four. four I really wish that book, that book was referred to me from someone else. You know what? You just can't take that personally, John. Yeah. Like you're taking it way too personally. (laughs) Exactly. Do your best work, John. Read it. No, I, we I didn't know. even talk about the third agreement, which is don't make assumptions. That's the whole. We could go into that for. I assume think that. about how many assumptions. <laughs> yeah, well played, especially yeah. change orders. I, if you think about how many assumptions, like contractors making assumptions when it comes to change orders, like usually by not you know documenting it or assuming people knew what they meant when they said, hey, yeah, let's yeah let's go with that nicer one, and you're like, mm-hmm. well, you knew it was costing more money, right? Didn't you? No, I didn't know that. Oh, I assumed you did. So yeah, that's a whole other, <laughs> yeah. another Whoops. subject. What's the fourth agreement? Did we say that? The fourth one is always do your best. So oh, just yeah. for those listening, keeping score. So first is be impeccable with your word. Second is uh, don't take anything personal. Third, don't make any assumptions. And fourth, always do your best. Those are the three. four agreements. How do we skip three? 
John uh, made some think, reference and he jumped to it. Yeah. Yeah. We got sidetracked. Oh this whole God. this whole thing has been kind of like we're, we we go down rabbit holes. I see that. This is, you know, I listen it, to a few of your other it, shows. And people it. love it. Yeah. Uh, we had Ross Fathui on um, just a couple episodes ago. And I chatted with him today and he's like, what do you think of the podcast? I'm like, it was great. A ton of people reached out. He's like, I listened to it. We went down all different topics. I'm like, that's the best part of this is that it's genuinely a conversation that we get to just chat and let it go where it goes. And there's no structure. And here we are almost three hours in, Ed, you've, you've been on six coaching calls today and now a three hour podcast and you're still uh, smiling ear to ear. So yeah, right. Right. Yeah, that's good. I think you guys should change the title. Call it like the Modern Craftsman Rabbit Hole Podcast. <laughs> uh, I mean, we'll, honestly, we'll work on that. We, we, it's a fact that we have people do the Survey Monkey, and you know I think there's only been eight people that have gone on to it. But we asked about like, hey, duration. We asked about like, you know, should we stay more structured? Should we stay, you know, organic? Everyone else has answered all the different questions differently. You know, three here, four there, whatever. One hundred percent, everyone's like, keep it organic the way it is. Yeah. So it's kind of fun because we get reviews, but this is kind of a way for us to dial in on certain areas. So it's a it's a fact. Yeah. No, and I, I love the dialogue between it. I think it's great to have the three of you, and I'll be able to. You guys kind of all get in each other's business, and I'll, oh yeah, it's great. It's been and very good. And we hang up and question each other's friendships and. <laughs> motives everything yeah now ed this was awesome i really appreciate you hopping on and making time uh this week i know you just got back from vacation so it's awesome that you were able to make it work yeah well thanks for having me nick i really enjoyed it and uh and uh, yeah let's let's do it again soon we got i've got we didn't really hardly cover i was going to talk about some of the stuff with covid and what we're seeing with our clients and all that kind of stuff so we'll we'll let's do it again sometime we'll We'll hook up and round see where two. things are. I'll, I'll send you the round link. Two. We'll schedule it, and I will send you a reminder this time. <laughs> okay, that's good. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, like more than a day before, Nick. Yes, right. yes. <laughs> yes. Ed, so. thank you so much, man. Thanks, Ed. You're thank very you, welcome. Sir. Thanks, guys. Have a good All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. That's a wrap to our first fully sponsored podcast, a new sponsor, Duration Molding and Millwork. Uh, so from their standard line of molding profiles to bevel sidings to semi-custom and custom molding profiles, historically accurate millwork, you name it, Duration provides unparalleled performance where fit, finish, and durability matter. Stocked in six different architecturally correct profiles with heavy shadow lines, Duration bevel siding is one of the real game changers, not only because it's indistinguishable from red cedar siding, which I don't know if Brent Hall will agree with, but that's all right. <laughs> when it's finished, but also because of its 16-foot length. Finger joint free material results in fewer vertical joints, and unlike real wood, wood composite, and fiber cement sidings, duration bevel siding doesn't require back or edge priming of cuts, greatly reducing insulation labor. No need for gapping, no clearance requirements for grade patios or even roofing material, further speed insulation time, and all from environmentally friendly, highly recyclable, content building materials duration bevel siding checks all the boxes to learn more about it duration poly ash products please visit their website durationmillwork.com d-u-r-a-t-i-o-n-m-i-l-l-w-o-r-k.com you guys use them right 
where you guys yeah. were having issues getting the siding. They uh, Boral stopped making yeah. the the bevel, so Duration picked it up, and now they manufacture it. Mm-hmm. But they manufacture a ton of stuff. Yeah, and they're, they're actually great, super close to me. They they got a great Instagram. They're always pulling in like a historical molding and showing it rotted to pieces, and then basically blasting out a thousand of them out of this stuff. So yeah, it's cool. Yeah, actually, I'm just getting something delivered from uh, the lumber the lumber yard that basically is affiliated with them right around the corner from me. Nice. Well, you guys know where to find us. We'll see you guys. Oh, wait. Who do we got up next week? We haven't been doing that. Let's see. Next week. Gary Kelly. Gary Kelly. Oh, he's from... Kelly yeah, Construction. Two Across first names. Pond. Two first Cro- names. Cross wa- the pond. He wants to talk about work life, time management, and money management. Oh boy. Ooh. And and dealing with chaos. LOL. <laughs> <laughs> so uh UK construction. I'm actually I, I'm I'm actually really excited about that because there's a lot of uh YouTube we'll call them uh commenters that talk about how we're idiots in the U.S. by building with wood, and we should be building everything out of concrete. Uh, I don't know what part of... I could be totally wrong. It might not even be the U.K. But like tram and way, stuff? We can talk about it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so we'll see you guys next week. Hey, jump on you iTunes. You know, we still need those things. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. iTunes, and then jump on SurveyMonkey, which is linked in a profile. Give us a little bit more feedback. It doesn't have to be positive, can be negative. It's Profile on Instagram, the Perry Mountain Craftsman. Correct. Yeah. You guys shape this podcast, so give us some feedback. Uh, feedback's appreciated. Spreading the word is appreciated. Um, Mountain Craftsman Mondays. Yeah, anything helps. Yeah. Feedback not audio feedback, just no. feedback on Which we had a little tonight, but I think we yeah, sorted yeah. it out. Yeah, so yeah. don't leave us any comments on that. <laughs> Thanks. Thank Thanks you. for listening, guys.